I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And why does nothing make sense anymore? Why do all of our most important words seem so slippery? Are definitions harder to define? What is a liberal? What really is a conservative? And what does small l liberalism, the philosophy that undergirds the foundation of American society, actually mean today? If you're confused, you're not alone. Our guest this week has spent much of his life trying to figure out society's most confounding dilemmas. Jay Shapiro is a producer, writer, and documentary filmmaker. He also hosts the Dilemma podcast, which focuses on philosophy, psychology, and politics. Jay, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Now, I always offer guests an opportunity to provide their own bios because before I begin peppering them with questions they didn't write and can't anticipate, I like to allow them the chance to describe themselves as they see fit. Who knows us better than us, right? But your biography is, to put it nicely, rather modest in its arrangement because when I invite a guest onto the show, it's usually to discuss something related to work that they've done or are doing and in a different and perhaps future episode, we could discuss the documentaries you've directed, one of which is about a favorite recent book of mine, Islam and the Future of Tolerance, or your 47 episodes in Counting Dilemma podcast, in which you discuss moral and philosophical problems with brilliant modern minds, or the many essays you've written available to read on whatjthinks.com. But today, we're going to talk about something else, something related to your work and your topics of interest, but something that is ultimately, I think, we would both agree, universal to everyone living in liberal societies today, liberalism. Yeah. Now, originally when we discussed you coming on the show, the premise I offered was the question, why does everything in life, every topic, every issue, every social navigation now feel like a dilemma, which was an homage to your podcast that is perhaps too clever by half. (laughs) But as we exchanged emails in the lead up to this recording, I realized there was a different but related question that was intriguing you, which is, and correct me if I'm wrong here, what is liberalism in the 21st century? And I think that these two questions are linked, even though they're not exactly the same. So I guess I want to start off with just kind of a, a an initial question that will kind of get us going. And this conversation can kind of lead in whatever avenue it leads into, because I know you have a lot of thoughts on this topic. So in your essay, Food First, Philosophy Later, which delves into the philosophical questions undergirding the promise of capitalism, you seem to speak of liberalism, classical liberalism, libertarianism, and capitalism as almost the same thing, or at least as stand-ins for one another. But I would ask, aren't the first three separate, though in some ways overlapping, philosophies, and isn't capitalism independent of those first three? So to put it another way, how would you, Jay, define (laughs) liberalism both as it is traditionally understood and how it is understood now in the 21st century? Wow. I think you should just keep talking. I think you're doing you're doing great with, with this. It's just going to be I'm me actually, monologuing for yeah. Hours. I'm actually yeah. just more interested in like your thoughts on these because I'm a, a podcast host myself. I'm like I want to ask you questions about all that. But no, that that's great. It was flattering. Also, yeah, liberalism. I don't know. I'm sort of pointing a finger at maybe how it feels. This thing called liberalism. And you're right. I sort of lumped it all into sort of let's call it like the Enlightenment, whatever that means, and whatever sort of fell out of that politically, economically as sort of a shift on placing the individual and individual autonomy and decision-making, whatever that means, I'm sure we'll get into it, on top of some sort of hierarchy. That 
becomes the fuel for the machine, whatever analogy works there, whatever kind of car you're trying to drive towards the future or progress, the fuel is the individual, which I think was a rather direct shift from God and sort of divine roles in our lives that sort of precluded that or governments or kings in a way. It was trying to put the individual on top of that pyramid. And I think generally capitalism and small L libertarianism and all these kinds of things agree upon that, which is such almost like a boring thing for me to say right now in the year 2021, that it's impossible to imagine that not being the case in any time in human history, because it's an idea that has obviously swallowed the entire world and this thing that we could sort of call neoliberalism, whatever that might end up meaning. You know, I think it's pretty much held true. And what I was trying to do in that essay is point, of course, to its resounding success at moving the graphs that we want to move in the right direction to move in the right direction. Things like infant mortality rate and lifespans and even just average wealth incomes and stuff like that. They're all generally moving in the right direction and fairly rapidly, but there are issues and blind spots to this entire philosophy, which I think we have been able to ignore for quite some time or just put off to be like, yeah, 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 we'll deal with all that existential kind of dread of what does it really mean to be an individual and all that kind of crazy stuff until later, we first have to just get everybody clothed and fed a roof over their head. And maybe I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but I'm trying to get ahead of that conversation a little bit because I honestly think we could see the end of that road, as it were, of the success of getting roofs and clothes and all that kind of stuff. And now I feel like we're struggling with a lot of the more deeper internal hollowness of being existential crisis kind of philosophy stuff, where, of course, you know, the title of that essay, Food First Philosophy Later, is maybe part two, if I ever get around to figuring out what part two is, which I'm sure we'll talk about, is we're full philosophy now. And what philosophy that is, how that differs from what became before with this idea of liberalism, I don't know. I'm excited to get into that and figure out what does that mean. (laughs) Yeah, I'm excited to discuss it with you as well. I don't want to keep quoting you to yourself and talking about you at length like this, but I do feel that it is instructive in order to let the listener into kind of exactly what we're talking about and also kind of some of the research and reading that I've done about you so that they're not left behind. So I want to briefly quote you to you from season two, episode 17 of your Dilemma podcast, which is titled The Atheistic Search for God, Mm. because I think it is directly related to what you just said, and also a topic that you touched on with Rock Mwangozi on a recent appearance on his podcast, which I think is instructive. So in The Atheistic Search for God, you say, quote, capital G God and what we normally think of as religious philosophy sets up a vast conspiracy theory of the existence of the universe itself. Perhaps they think it is a loving conspiracy theory, but it's a conspiracy nonetheless. I bring all this up because I'm also interested in the atheistic conversation regarding the current political landscape. Conspiracy theory thinking has taken over huge portions of our politics. Clearly it has with Trumpism and the ideas about the deep state and election fraud and all that garbage. (laughs) Cosigned. And of course, it also is thriving on the left with unfalsifiable theories involving systemic racism and answers which can't be questioned rather than questions that can't be answered. I have been a bit dismayed by the lack of courage for many atheists to loudly proclaim all of this to be the same scourge of religious thinking simply cast as new, seemingly secular political efforts. All these graphs of religious devotion declining, I'm a bit skeptical of how deep that really is sinking in the full push for an atheistic and scientific way of thinking and seeking truth, end quote. And the reason that I'm quoting that back to you 
is that I think that these two things are linked. I think that the issue that you're getting at with liberalism and the Enlightenment's resounding success in providing us with, and by us, I mean really a kind of a small slice of the world, because of course, a lot of the world has not yet borne the fruit of those values. And many people are still struggling day to day, living in abject poverty. But for the people who are living within those nations that are reaping the benefits of, let's say, Enlightenment values or small l liberalism, I think that there is a void that is left when liberalism succeeds. Because as Francis Fukuyama talks about liberalism in his essay, Liberalism and Its Discontents, which I'll talk about in a bit, liberalism as an ethos is individualistic. And so it doesn't, by its very nature, give life greater meaning. It leaves you to discover that meaning yourself. But, and I realize that you're an atheist, and I think I'm an agnostic now. I kind of went through an angry atheist phase mm. in my 20s. We all do. But I, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was very angry, but I've kind of mellowed out a bit. But I've kind of come around to this awareness in the last few years that in the absence of a traditional religion, mm. I think that, like that famous Kurt Vonnegut poem, mm. right? What, fish got to swim, bird got to fly, man got to sit around and ask why, why, why. I'm kind yeah, of butchering that. I love yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. You were close enough. Great book. Yeah, close <laughs> enough. I'll put in the show notes so you can see how I butchered it. But I think that we are a meaning-seeking machine. Mm-hmm. And when small L liberalism does not give us that meaning and our lives become so plentiful relative to human history that we have nothing left to fill our days with in terms of turmoil and work. Yeah. What fills the void? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I've been thinking about this a lot lately, as you said, and I've been thinking about this notion of belief, full disclosure. So that episode with Seth Andrews, a lot of people, I don't know, his followers, he is a, the thinking atheist podcast and sort of community aren't thrilled that I use the word God as freely as I do. I, maybe there's a lot of sort of the angry atheists who get sort of triggered by that word. And he in particular also like wasn't super comfortable using it because maybe politically it just brings up images for people of a bearded guy in the sky and all that kind of stuff. I'm trying to use it as a way, the word God there as a way to, I don't know, make one of those real hippie-ish, we're all in this together kind of statements of we're all in the same search here. We're all in a chaotic universe that we are trying to find patterns in the noise. We're trying to figure out what's going on. Like you said, we're trying to find meaning, which is not easy. Whether you're an atheist or not, it is not easy. And the atheistic search for God, I named it in that way because I'm trying to lay out some sort of analogy there that there are questions that we are after. The only reason for doing anything, I think, (laughs) is to try to come up with an explanation. The only reason to look for life on other planets, like what are we really doing there? What are we hoping to find? I think ultimately we're trying to find some sort of theory of everything of like what is going on. And that ultimate, ultimate question of why is there something rather than nothing is a deep philosophical question that I think is unanswerable because no matter what you find, you can always ask that question, well, why is there something rather than nothing? And I'm just trying to use the word God as a stand-in for that. And so if you say you're trying to answer the why is there something rather than nothing, fully knowing that it's an infinite process, it's an infinite path, that is genuinely the atheistic path to walk. But you know, as you sort of pointed out, it's, that doesn't guarantee meaning along the way. And, and for a lot of people, that's not enough. And it might be too scary. So I've been thinking a lot more about this idea of belief lately, just generally belief. And beliefs are complicated, of course, and there's a lot of reasons we conjure them. There's social reasons that we profess to have them or we build them in ourselves. But I think 
there's a hypothesis I have, a psychological hypothesis about what beliefs are. And I think generally it holds true that they are stories and narratives we tell about the world around us or ourselves that allow us or shield us from a much more painful or much more dreadful kind of truth. Whether that's some awful family member treating someone terribly, but you just don't want to believe that because that's just like too terrible of a thought. So you have a belief about why they did what they did, or you could call these excuses, but at some point they become a belief that you really believe is true. And I think it's a way for psychologically our own minds to prevent us from entering a level of pain and existential dread that might be suicidal. And these happen all the time, right? It's like you believe things at some point and it starts to build upon itself where it becomes your identity. And we might need these things to navigate a chaotic universe because the truth is the atheistic view, and I think what scares a lot of religious people would be the true atheistic, cold, hard view of the world is, is this just billiard balls? Is there really nobody watching me? Do bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? And there's no such thing as justice in the afterlife? Is death real? Like, I didn't ask to be born and then it's going to go away someday. These things are incredibly just existential dread. And maybe that's too painful and too hard of a truth. And so we want to conjure up something between us and that very cold, ugly light in the mirror that we see. And so we invent a belief to sort of help massage that. And that's okay. And we can get a lot of meaning out of those things. But ultimately, I think the challenge for, as you sort of pointed to, and we're sort of circling around back to it, a political system which thrives on just letting people out on their own to find this meaning, it's just not an easy path. <laughs> and clearly we're seeing, I think, a bit of a, a breakdown in people failing to do that on their own. And I have tons of sympathy for it because it's very, very difficult. It's not an easy path. And part of the reason I do my show and the reason that I've been excited about some of the shows like yours is I think we need a deeper philosophical conversation with each other, which again, goes back to that essay, which I'm glad you really liked of this food first philosophy later. Maybe we can sort of break through this process of the success of the Enlightenment and liberalism and libertarianism generally globally. You said a small sliver of the world is doing well, which is true on the top of that graph, but actually only 12 to 13% of the world is in extreme poverty, which is down from like 80% just a couple hundred years ago. So it's doing quite well. And I think these are the kind of conversations of how do we really get meaning? How do we deliver meaning and find it with each other that we are forced to really contend with? And what's coming down the pipeline with automation and a rapidly changing economy due in large part to our technological successes is also incredibly challenging because work and work associations or even just mastery of the physical world is up until now a uniquely human domain where people have derived a ton of meaning from those kinds of associations. Even just yourself, your participation in your local economy was a way to get meaning because people depended on you and you could see it. If you didn't show up for work, people would know and the system would break. And so you felt like, oh, I have a role here. I have a purpose to play. And as automation or even just algorithmic governance, whatever that means to you, or these tech companies that are worth billions of dollars, I don't know the numbers, you'll probably get it wrong. But when Instagram was bought by Facebook, they had like less than 50 employees and they were billions and billions of dollars. These kinds of arrangements are fairly new for humanity. And I worry that generally people are feeling like they don't matter or it's hard to see they're mattering to these big 
global systems that are out there running our economies in these things. And so I don't know, we all want to matter. And I don't think we're talking enough about that problem. And that's the specific problem that hopefully is apolitical. Like it manifests itself clearly in political fights. But if you could somehow put a philosophical translator on like what you saw on January 6th with Trumpism breaking through the door of the Capitol or nine years ago at Occupy Wall Street or the Bernie energy or what's happening in Brazil or Egypt or the Arab Spring all over the world is just like a bunch of animals screaming like, I want to matter more. So that's where my mind goes of trying to get under these things. And again, hopefully see that they're global, eternal and connective kind of struggles that we all go through. I don't think we're as divided as we appear to be. No, I don't think we are either, although we seem to, and I'm using we, anytime I say we in this conversation, I'm using it loosely, but I think many people, at least online, are suffering from an extreme lack of empathy and understanding because I don't think that online discourse encourages it. I think that the very nature of how we talk to one another online I mean, even calling it conversation as as human beings traditionally understand, it doesn't even feel right. Because if I can say something mean to you, and one, it's delayed because kind of like a turn-based game, I'm typing a message that you might not immediately see. So you might see it five, 10, 20 minutes later, three hours later, long after I've sent it and I've gotten that kind of little boost of a reward of telling you something mean that I I really stuck it to Jay. (laughs) Not only is there a delayed reaction there where I can't immediately get your feedback to know how badly I may have hurt you, but I can't even see the reaction on your face. Yeah. And human beings are evolved to be able to read each other's facial expressions. I mean, hell, so are dogs. Like dogs have spent so much time around human beings that not only have they developed eyebrows in order to better express themselves so that we may better understand them, they are able to read our own facial expressions better than like chimpanzees because of how much time they've spent with us. And and so humans are are saying my dogs. Are you saying my emojis aren't working for you? You know, I could could send you the winky face. Don't you know what that means? (laughs) I'm saying that emojis are hieroglyphics. Yeah. But you touch on something really important, which I think is, There is a lot that I miss about religion, and I think the thing that I miss the most is the certainty. Hmm. I miss the certainty, but I also don't miss it, in that I miss the certainty of when I used to believe, and when I used to believe that I truly knew that the universe was made by a benevolent being that loved me. And when I believed that that was true, man, it made a lot of difficult things a lot easier because when you knew that there was someone capital s someone on your side through the difficult times whatever those times may have been or who was cheering you on in your victories it made the kind of chaos of the universe feel more ordered but the problem is is that once you lose that belief it kind of uh tints that idea of the certainty because you realize and i realize that i have probably listeners who are religious and no offense mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. merely speaking of my own journey here But I can no longer look at that certainty that I had in the same way because I know that that certainty, at least to me, was built on something that I don't believe is true. But I think that people are always going to be searching for a higher meaning. And you can look throughout human history whenever religion has waned, right? You can look at uh, Henry David Thoreau, right, in his book Walden, where he talks about finding the answer to the meaning of life by leaving society, which in 1854 is a kind of society we would want to escape to now probably and disappearing into the woods. And this is echoed over and over. You're either using nature as a knowledge holding totem or great men and women like Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Barack Obama, Elizabeth Warren, 
people who quote unquote have all the answers, or we project it onto the eternal foreign, right? Whether they're Native Americans in movies like Dances with Wolves or movies like Eat, Pray, mm-hmm. Love or the recent leftist obsession with quote other ways of knowing, right? Yeah, yeah. Because I think that at the core of it is what if we truly have figured it out? And I don't mean like technologically, we still have a long way to go. We can visit other planets, et cetera. But what if philosophically we have figured it out mm-hmm. and what we figured out is terrifying? Yeah. If you, I mean, if you don't mind, I was going to read, this has probably been done a lot of times before now, but the Nietzsche quote, because I mean, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. You bringing up philosophers and my dive into philosophy, which started after, honestly after 9-11 and, and has continued, I think is really, is worthwhile. And, and you can find a lot to apply that feels at first blush, maybe it's hard to sort of see what they were talking about, or it's these like people have images of Socrates and Plato wearing robes or whatever, like philosophy is a much, much deeper and more interesting subject than it first appears. But what you're getting at, the famous God is dead quote, when we were angry atheists in our 20s, we probably stopped right there with God is dead. (laughs) But there was much more to the quote. Nietzsche was a rather interesting guy, and I'll just read it short. God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe the blood off us? What water is there to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? Now, I mean, it's a beautiful quote. So if anyone's just hearing it for the first time with the rest of it, Nietzsche gets cast as this like 20-year-old angry atheist. But I mean, he's a rather interesting thinker, of course. And he's noting how big of a deal that is the same way you were of like, this is a big deal. I mean, if we're really on our own, are we going to be able to step into that role and become these gods who appear worthy of it? And religion, I would say, and this is really the turning point, is like the atheistic search for God, if there is such a thing, and the challenge of it is to have enough courage, I would hope, to try, to just give it a try. And the truth is, we are going to make a mess, and we often make a mess, right? Like religious stories remind you often how much you should not try this. You will fail, right? Like Icarus flying too close to the sun and his wings burn off, biting from the tree of knowledge and then being cast out. A lot of religious stories are very, very skeptical of a human playing God. And this starts a lot of sort of the conservative liberal split. And I think now we're sort of getting back to how philosophy can map onto these new new and old political sort of ideas that we have. Conservative kind of approach, I think, is very, very cautious whenever humans start to play God. Something like abortion, I think triggers this notion of humans intervening in something that is the domain of God. In that case, and we can certainly get into it, I'm sure, but the consequences of one's sin is something that is very important for a religious philosophy. And without a God, there are no consequences to your sin. So how are we going to do that? And then we invent something like moral philosophy, whatever it is, but something like stem cell research feels like playing God. Anytime there's a hint that humans are playing God, I think there is the response to Nietzsche of like, yeah, we're going to fail at this. We can't do this. If God is dead, we need to reinvent him and pretend he's still there because we're going to screw it up. Whereas the liberal mindset, I think, or the secular mindset, what I hope is more the atheistic mindset is the one that is like, yeah, this is hard. We have really hard work in front of us. 
but let's give it a try and let's do our best and try to work together and it's going to be messy and uh, maybe it's a more sort of humanistic approach, but that does not guarantee success. I think one of the major breakdowns that we're seeing in society now is the hubris that we will succeed with something like this. And just to bring it back down to some like really tangible things, I've been reading this just fantastic book that I can't stop quoting of by Matthew B. Crawford called Why We Drive. And he's doing sort of a political and philosophical examination of driving. Kind of maybe he thinks like before it's too late and how driving has changed and why we love to drive and what that means sort of in the face of the self-driving car or automatic red light cameras that send out a ticket to you when you run them and all these sort of interesting things that you might feel is like, how is this going to be philosophical? But he does this incredible job to point out how political the space of driving really is. And the anecdotes of just being a car tinkerer, someone who loves an old car, or loves your truck or whatever it is, this old rusty thing that you keep going and you have a lot of pride in and you're keeping it run as almost a, a novelty or a thorn in the side of this thing that we just call progress. Like that person in that car is just in the way of what we, and now I'm doing what you're doing. I'm saying we as like coastal elites, liberals, whatever, have decided is what progress means, which is this is too dangerous. What you're doing is too dangerous. We need self-driving cars and we need to make sure this is all padded and we're going to have a computer that is running your engine and all that stuff that you learned from your grandfather about how to tinker with the carburetor, like cute, but you don't need it anymore. And we sort of laugh at all of these notions as just being Luddites or in the way of this thing. And that might be right. You know, I want to give Matthew Crawford some credit here. He's not like making a case against self-driving cars. There might The case for safety there might be the winning case, whatever that means. But we need to do a better job, whatever that means, of having a more honest and respectful and humble conversation. Go back to the Nietzsche quote, like the humbleness of like, this is going to be hard. Can we do this? Are we going to screw it up? We've been moving very, very quickly in this one direction of progress. And we haven't asked anybody. And they sort of have no choice but to get on board this train or, I don't know, be left behind. Like the hashtag of learn to code was like the most offensive piece of pop culture of the last like decade that I've seen come across that is just so atrocious to me. And the hard part, the problem is that when this kind of anxiety and when this kind of thing boils over, it doesn't always sound as sophisticated as maybe you think what I just laid out there is like these anxieties about meaning and getting meaning from working on your car or meaning from driving or breaking down on the side of the road. And then some big tech giants is going to take it away from you. It doesn't come out that way. Usually it comes out as something maybe as buffoonish as like a Confederate flag marching through the Capitol or, you know, a Donald Trump hat and like a liberal tears mug or something like it. It comes out in this way that is not very smart and sophisticated. There's not a lot of nuance to it. And it could just lead to these very loud, noisy political fights. But underneath all of that, I think there is an absolutely real, genuine conversation to have. And maybe in some ways, I'm seeing some daylight here now that Trump, the man, is out of that picture. Well, not 
out. We'll see what happens, but not in the office at least anymore. And this conversation of like, is there Trumpism without Trump has been a somewhat interesting question for a while. And Trump himself has just been too annoying, <laughs> I think, for a lot of people to actually face that question honestly. But of course, there's Trumpism without Trump. If you say this is a global kind of anxiety about this maybe pushback against the inevitability of this future that is being created by people who are not asking for the permission. They're just creating it and calling it a moral good. They'll moralize it if you stand in the way of it. And it's global. It's happening with Bolsonaro in Brazil and Victor Orban and Le Pen and Brexit. And you could go back to the Arab Spring in a weird way, or even all the way back to Occupy Wall Street, or maybe what's happening with GameStop now. You could call it sort of a populist pushback on this thing. So trying philosophically to put your finger on what exactly that thing is. I think this is all about your initial question about like, what is this liberalism thing? And is liberalism, has it become too overconfident in the world that it is crafting for itself without a God? And I'm using that in the big G and little g sense there because it's without a considered nuanced, moral, philosophical sort of conversation, if that makes any sense. It's just running its machine. It's sort of when it puts the individual on top of that pyramid, as we had said before, and if we're going to talk about libertarianism or something, it just sort of is a blind machine that produces results, basically, depending on the individualistic behavior of each one of its parts. And generally, that leads to something pretty good, but it breaks and it fails all the time. And there's no captain on that ship which is what libertarians love. They don't want a central planner, but there's no captain on that ship. And that's still this eternal initial problem of when there's no captain on the ship, we might drive the ship into an iceberg. And for as dumb as the Trumpism thing looks on paper and on your TV screens and as annoying as it can be, if you could somehow translate it, if you have a lot of liberals who listen to you or people who are trying to figure out if they're still liberal and they can't get on board with that Trumpism, if you could in your own mind philosophize the Trumpism thing as best you can. What did they always tell us to do? Not take them literally, but take them seriously. Maybe I'm making that sort of point here. Try to get beneath it as this expression, as unsophisticated as it sounds, an expression of anger at the inevitability of the world that is being crafted for people who did not ask for it. If that made any sense to anybody, (laughs) bless me. Yeah, I think it did. And In terms of liberalism and how I kind of have come to define it, at least small l liberalism, I honestly think that when I was reading that essay that I shared with you by Francis Fukuyama Mm -hmm. and how he kind of described both classical liberalism and modern liberalism, he describes classical liberalism as such, quote, classical liberalism can best be understood as an institutional solution to the problem of governing over diversity. Or to put it in slightly different terms, it is a system for peacefully managing diversity in pluralistic societies. It arose in Europe in the late 17th and 18th centuries in response to the wars of religion that followed the Protestant Reformation, wars that lasted for 150 years and killed major portions of the populations of continental Europe, end quote. It's a long essay and he goes into more depth there, but I kind of say this at the end of the show, I kind of close it out in the end of the show and I know it's a bit twee, but to me, liberalism is kind of how I end each episode, which is may we be liberal with our goodwill liberal in our capacity for friendly disagreement, and liberal in our ability to change our minds when we feel justly convinced. And that to me is what liberalism means. You can be on the right or on the left and still practice liberalism in my view. And that's why for me, the show, as modest as it is, is my way of trying to add something a little less toxic Mm -hmm. to the discourse than what is offered in places like Facebook 
and Twitter. And I want to go back to that thing that you said about learn to code, because it reminds me of the reaction that I had in 2016 on the night that Donald Trump was elected. I remember watching it at a bar in Los Angeles on Third Street and like Third Street and La Cienega, I think. And I was at that same bar in 2012 uh, mm-hmm. when Obama beat Romney. And it's a bar with a couple dozen television screens. And it was standing room only, packed capacity in 2012, and a really kind of joyous, raucous place, <laughs> if you were an Obama fan, to yeah. be when he won. And I remember I went to that same exact bar in 2016. I wasn't super jazzed about Hillary, but I was excited for her to win over Trump. And so I thought, hey, I really like the experience I had four years ago. I got a couple of friends together. We went to that same bar. And I knew that something was amiss the moment we stepped inside because this bar that had well over 100 people in it four years ago, we were four of 12 people there around 6.30, 6.40 p.m. And as the results began to trickle in, and it became more and more obvious that Trump was going to be the winner, I started getting really angry, but Mm. not angry with Trump's supporters. I became angry with the media, Mm. the media that I had been consuming for probably the last decade, media like the New York Times, the Atlantic, Salon, Slate, media that had told me, not only is Hillary going to win, how big will her landslide be? And when that didn't come to pass, I began to question the very fabric of the reality that I had come to appreciate, which is, am I actually living in the world right now? Or am I looking at the world through a filter that is custom made for me to confirm my worldview to me every single day? And I went through this period of about a year where I experienced like a deep kind of sense of shame that I had been using language like the flyover states or Mm -hmm. people who voted against their own interests. I -hmm. was the walking, talking embodiment of the snooty, holier-than-thou liberal elite who went to graduate film school and thought thought I knew it all, right, compared to the people in the middle of the country, right? And I don't know, something broke that evening. And I think it was kind of like, if I look back, I'm sure there were fissures there that was leading up to that event. But then once I kind of put on the they live glasses, I couldn't unsee it. And so then when I would see media, whether it was like the Covington kids or Jesse Smollett, or I could probably pull out half a dozen articles if I had five minutes to Google them. Mm. It felt like all the media that I had been consuming, even previously, I didn't know what I could trust. And so it's not that I went more right. Mm -hmm. Although I guess on some issues, I did reconsider my positions because I hadn't been considering them much at all. But it was more that I became much more empathetic to the other half of the country that I had been writing off. Yeah, I think I was lucky to probably do a little bit bit of that earlier, post 9-11. I think I'm a little bit older than you, but when 9-11 hit, I was in college and I started having some of these conversations that (laughs) made me question a lot of these kinds of bubbles. So honestly, when Trump won in 2016, I was watching that and I had already been terrified and it was a coin flip, but I was not very confident that Hillary was going to win that. And I was fully on board that if your only concern was preventing Donald Trump from winning that election, Bernie Sanders was the horse to ride. And it was purely based on what I just laid out in my previous answer about this kind of anxiety and energy about progress and the hubris of liberalism and the hubris of the tech giants and what Hillary kind of maybe unfairly, but what she represented as a person and as a biography as someone who seemingly rejected <laughs> the South. She like, lives in New York and has that kind of attitude, uses the deplorables line that she couldn't shake. She was just like the worst embodiment f- 
for that anger. And when Bernie Sanders in the primaries was winning all the Midwestern states and all the old Democrat union states in Michigan and Wisconsin and Iowa, I don't think he won Iowa, but did quite well. For me, that was it of like, oh, if you want to win this election, like this is just a game, like Bernie Sanders is the guy to pull for here. I think a lot of people had that disillusionment. Hillary was winning the black vote in the South. I was like, great, that's not going to matter on election day because she's not going to win those states anyway. If you're just trying to win this game, Bernie's the guy to ride. But yeah, this whole question that you're having of maybe what it means to be liberal anymore or when that happened or this kind of like, who are these Trump people? I think those are real interesting questions. I was getting to them through this initial sort of philosophical dive of like, wait, where do I depart from these people? And for me, it's that one. It's this really deep like, humans versus gods kind of split and what that sort of falls out for or what that sort of looks like in the end. But yeah, we've sort of, I think, still failed to have these honest conversations. I remember (laughs) when Trump won, there was a whole lot of noise in the media of like, let's go find out what these people are like. And, you know, Van Jones would go to a diner in Iowa or something for two seconds and talk to them and be like, now we know. And it's like, this is the, this is a much deeper, more difficult conversation than that. And something that I was referencing earlier of like, we can conjure beliefs to prevent us from looking at a cold, hard truth. I think some of that, just calling them racist and coming up with this sort of unquestionable hypothesis that I would call a conspiracy theory of like, they're just racist and racism explains everything here is a way to prevent yourself from looking at that cold, hard truth of they are real people. Like you were pointing out, they're real people and they're good people and they're upset about something. And I don't know what it is. And yes, race, of course, is part of that conversation. That's not to just like dismiss it completely, but it can become a crutch. It could put your view of the world, a filter in between it that because you just don't want to look at it honestly. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not even sure like how to respond to it. I've been looking for these bridges for a long time and I am only able to find them in these really deep, maybe difficult to convey philosophical bridges that we could build, but they're there. And I just think we have to somehow find ourselves on them. I've always said it's it's a matter of time before all those Occupy kids and the Trump kids realize they're on the same team and they finally just form the mob that eats the rich. And I don't know if anybody wants to see that day. Maybe, maybe some of us kind of do, but it's all the same thing. So trying to circle like really what that thing is. I think we can find it. I said this to Rock actually, and maybe you heard it, is like we spend way too much time talking about economics and politics and way too little time talking about philosophy and the philosophies that underpin them. So I don't know. I'm not sure if that answers any of it or or maybe commiserates with you about and maybe it's why you started this show of questioning it, being like, wait, what does it even mean to be a liberal anymore? I've never questioned that before. I just was told I was one and that was my team and that wasn't a good way to operate. <laughs> so I think that the problem is I can speak more confidently about my quote unquote side, which is a language I'm still trying to disabuse myself of. But Mm. if I've been a member of a club for a couple decades, it's going to be somewhere on the left, right? Either center left or I guess now more centrist, but I still have never, I don't feel comfortable (laughs) identifying conservative because I've never seen myself that way. But what I think that a lot of people on the left do is and I'm trying to figure out a way to word this articulately, but I think that a lot of them pretend that they have ascended beyond normal human emotions and anxieties. (laughs) And by that, what I mean is there was a study, I'll see if I can find it, but the results stuck with me. It was a study that was done in like a deep, deep blue 
town somewhere in the Northeast, one of those small states like a New Hampshire or a Connecticut. And they were polling these very, very, very liberal people in a predominantly white town, what their views on immigration were. Mm. And overwhelmingly, they were like, yeah, more immigration. It's those people who have the signs on their lawns. You know, mm. in this house, we believe oh, no human a lot of them here. No yeah, human just, being is illegal. I just Black moved Lives to Matter. Asheville. I think I could quote. I just moved to Asheville, North Carolina. I could probably quote it for you. Science is real. There's a few Science other things. Real. Love is love. Yeah. Love is love. Yeah. Yeah. I hate those signs because <laughs> yeah. they're not real. They don't mean anything. They're religious. Yeah. Because they don't require any kind of deep thought. And so in this study where they polled this lily white, very, very liberal town about immigration, people were overwhelmingly supportive of increasing immigration rates, right? Now, these researchers were smart and they wanted to run a little test. So they asked this question of a few hundred respondents in the town, and then they ran a little experiment. For about two weeks, what they did was they took two, just two, Jay, Spanish speakers, and they put them on the train that a lot of the people rode into the city on their commute every morning, right? They took two Spanish speakers, put them on the train at different times, right? So that enough people in the town would be exposed to these Spanish speakers. So like every 10 or 15 minutes, I don't know if they use the same two or like a, a few different teams. And all they did was have them speak exclusively Spanish on the train. Hmm. Then they did the same exact poll a few weeks later after a couple consistent weeks of having these Spanish speakers on the train in this otherwise no Spanish speakers around white liberal town. And what do you think happened? After just a couple weeks of that, there was a double digit switch towards the wow. conservative end of yeah. people responding to how they feel about immigration. And there was a double digit trend in the other direction about restricting rather than increasing it. And so what bothers me about a lot of the dialogue on the left, and this is mirrored in the right in other ways, is that they're not being honest with themselves about how difficult it is for human beings in general to discuss and deal with rapid change yeah. or not even rapid change, sometimes change that is just slow. And to imagine that you yourself have ascended beyond the anxiety that comes with change and to just write it off as racism, when oftentimes when we discuss issues of change or immigration, yes, of course, some of it is racist, mm -hmm. but let me take myself, for instance, and I don't want to just rant endlessly here, but I'm half Armenian. Mm -hmm. My ancestors came over 100 years ago escaping the genocide, the ones who survived. And I live in a pretty Armenian part of Los Angeles. And although I'm Armenian on paper, just as Armenian as anyone who's my neighbor right now, we are extremely culturally distinct because how couldn't we be? My ancestors have been living in America. I'm fourth generation now, so I don't speak it. I don't celebrate Christmas on January 6th. I mean, I have a predilection for hummus, but really who doesn't? <laughs> yeah. But in terms of my cultural values, they're much more conservative than I am. In mm. terms of how family plays a role in their life, in terms of their beliefs about things like race or ethnicity, which you would never want published online, but they've shared with me, we are very distinct and different people. So I can say comfortably, and I, I like my neighbors, right? But if I had to choose who I would want to just like, grab a beer with on a day-to-day -day basis, it's not a racial or ethnic question. It's a generational question versus established versus recent populations. And of course, I've had broken bread. I've had dinner with my neighbors. Again, they're great people. But in terms of who I see eye to eye on in regards to cultural issues, I see more eye to eye with my fourth generation Mexican-American friend who I see mm -hmm. on a biweekly basis than I do with someone who is ethnically, genetically the same as me. And so oftentimes I think what gets lost when we talk about things like change is people just write it off as white supremacy or racism when oftentimes it's not that thing. 
But right. we disallow nuanced conversation because I think we're incapable of it. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how it hits you. I've sort of made this resolution to myself that whenever anybody, including myself, because I've caught myself doing it now, brings out the left, right, and then by default center, or calling himself a centrist sort of model, I've made it sort of my yeah resolution to like interrupt either myself or them and being like, I don't know actually what those words mean anymore, <laughs> because I wonder how they're ringing true to you. And it's why, again, the name of your show is so attractive to me, because it's just like the question is in the name of like, wait, does this actually mean anything anymore? Left, right, liberal, conservative, like people are using these words interchangeably, maybe progressive even. And I'm trying to stop the conversation and being like, what do you mean? And what do we mean? Because... I think what used to work there was almost an economic sort of strategy, if that makes any sense. Like imagine basically how to solve the problem of the commons was what left, right kind of meant for me in an economic sense, where it's like, if the problem of the commons is what would the original commons be like a sheep common that everybody was a sheep herder in the town and they all like ate from the the meadow or something. And then, but people also like to play on this meadow. And so now we have a problem of there's different interests and how do we do this? And so everybody in that little town got together and we're like, how do we solve this problem? Because there's different interests about this problem of the commons. And half the people were like, well, the best way is that we should like elect a town councilman and they'll decide it for us with different rules. And they'll make a schedule about when the sheep people can use it and when the soccer players can use it. And if we don't like how they're doing it, we'll have like another election so we could get them out of there. And that'll be the system. And we'll invent this thing called like democracy. And that's how we'll solve this problem. And that was generally a left solution. And the right solution was like, oh no, the best way to do this is like, everybody should just like start their own private company and we'll split up the land and then they'll fight over it. And we'll all just sort of vote with our dollars. We don't need to invent this like government thing. We'll all just sort of like figure it out. This libertarian kind of solution will deploy the greed of everybody in this place that wants to use the, the meadow at the same time. And it'll work itself out by voting with our dollars or something like that. And that was generally the right solution. So you basically then had this like big government on this side, small or no government on the other side. And it sort of worked of like, where do you fall in that strategy? I just think that's completely broken down. I don't know if that means that much to anyone anymore. We basically all find ourselves somewhere along the line of that spectrum. Then we might call ourselves socially progressive, but economically right. Or like, I have no idea what these kind of terms even mean anymore. And it seems because, and maybe this is going back to that essay that you liked and I appreciate it is like the system sort of works. We tweak the dials, but we all find ourselves somewhere along that left, right line. And we sort of just decide that it works. And so what we're actually fighting over is all these other things that we call left and right. Like you brought up immigration, which sort of relates to it a little bit or abortion, like I brought up or social issues like gay marriage. And then we're suddenly talking about something very, very different. I don't know if it's fair to just sort of cast it as like people who are nervous about change versus people who are excited about change. That certainly is a psychological spectrum that some people are just sort of status quo. There's a wonderful psychologist who maybe I, I might end up working with Karen Stenner, who wrote this paper and book about the authoritarian dynamic, which takes a psychological dive at this question about authoritarianism. And she proposes, and I think it's probably good, is really not what they're afraid of is change, but complexity. It's people who are 
uncomfortable with complexity. And when a situation gets very complex, they have sort of a higher level of anxiety with it. It's not just a right-wing phenomenon, although it correlates a little bit more with sort of what I labeled as sort of conservative or right-wing in that economic sense. And when things are complex, they get nervous. And why you always see sort of a Trump or a Bolsonaro or a Le Pen or Hitler, like clownish kind of crazy figures, is that there's a boiling point where enough of that authoritarian sort of dynamic gets ignited in your mind of this is too complex, the world is too complex, and they'll follow someone who promises a kind of rapid sometimes violent, so they're not afraid of change, but rapid, violent revolution towards some place on the other side that's very simple. The Make America Great Again slogan is about a promise of simplicity, a promise of going back when it was simple. Maybe what you were saying with your religious, like a promise of certainty. You know where to get meaning from in that world. And this world is actually incredibly complex. And the world that big tech is making is complex. And the world that liberals are sort of promoting of 72 genders and you don't know which one to select anymore and am i offending somebody by calling them black today or is it african-american it's all just too complex it's too complex i don't like it make it simple for me again oh i'll follow that guy through this incredibly sort of rapid violent change with the promise of simplicity on the other end so we have like all these different spectrums that we can talk about but i have no idea what people say when they mean left right center. I did a similar dive as you. Again, I started sort of like after 9-11 and tried to to question. And maybe this is something we all do is like, am I still liberal? Am I still a liberal? And where I came out was yes. And it was that deeper question about the atheistic sort of challenge of humanism and secular humanism and how they go together. And that sort of melded in my mind of that's what I mean by liberal is that effort. But with a, a hopefully a new level of humility that I might have the wrong answer to that output. So I see my role in all of these conversations as a way to, (laughs) when I find somebody who's too certain of their position, whether that was (laughs) your former self or a liberal or conservative, whatever that means, when they're too sure of what they're saying, maybe it's my philosophical training is like, don't be so sure and don't be so certain. And I hope my role is to complicate the picture a little bit, that it's not so simple. The world is not so black and white, which is a challenge when the authoritarian dynamic gets ignited, obviously with Trumpism, of people who really want and are striving for a black and white world. So there's always a scapegoat, like you said, it might be immigration or something else, but it's just not a simple picture and not a simple world that we live in. So I don't know. I would push back just a little bit because I want to hear your thoughts on this. And I'm kind of simplifying your answer here, but that it's the right that mostly clings to certainty when I think that the left does it in a different way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. what I think is the right, and speaking in broad strokes, of course, mm-hmm. the right can cling to the certainty of what they once knew, not really appreciating the fact that what they once knew wasn't that certain for that long <laughs> because society is changing. And this is kind of a, a related point, society is changing more rapidly year to year, decade to decade than at literally any point in human history. I mean, within the last hundred years, and this isn't some kind of revelatory statement, I mean, the last hundred years has seen more change in the world, I think, than the what, the previous thousand years in terms of every measure. Yeah. Yeah. Technological progress, societal progress, etc. But the certainty that the people on the left cling to is the absolute certainty that the thing they have just discovered is the way. Mm Mm-hmm we've just now discovered this thing, or we've just now read this thing about gender or race or ethnicity or immigration or pick a topic, right? It was just discovered. We just mandated it two days ago. And now we are so certain, Jay, 
We are yeah. so certain that this, this is the answer and we found it. It's a kind of funhouse mirror version of the conviction that you would find on the religious right. right the idea right. that instead of a book handed down by a bearded man from the mountaintop a couple thousand years ago, it's an essay written by Ta-Nehisi Coates or a book by Ibram X. Kendi or whoever it may be, right? Pick your novelist or thinker or philosopher du jour of today. And it's like both sides have chosen a very black and white version of the Chesterton's fence, <laughs> where one is absolutely sure you should never, ever, 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 ever tear that fence down. And the other is absolutely sure that that fence should have been torn down three days ago. Yeah. And every minute that goes by that you don't tear down that fence is literal violence. Mm-hmm. And it feels like both sides are clinging to certainty. And I wonder why they do. Do you have any ideas? <laughs> well, because the world is a scary place and certainty <laughs> is more comfortable. I'll give you an example of, I think, how this maps onto maybe individual lives or maybe your life. I've made this point before, but I think moral philosophy, if people are listening and if there's jargon that I'm pulling out that is off-putting, I apologize for it because I actually want all these conversations to be very accessible, but here's a little philosophical jargon. But it's very, very simple. Moral philosophy, I think, is easy, actually. There's two things. There's deontology and there's consequentialism. Deontology is basically trying to decide what you should do next, which is the question of morality, what is right and what is wrong, by the question of rules, by the answer of rules, that there are just rules that you must follow no matter what. Deciding what those rules are, different conversation. They might be handed down by God. They might be something we discovered, but whatever it is, it's a rule that you must follow. It's a good rule always. That's deontology. Immanuel Kant, who gets referenced a lot for people who are wading into it, is sort of a deontologist who had a universal principle. Anyway, the opposite of that or the next step of that is consequentialism, which says like, well, rules are all fine and good, but really it depends. (laughs) It depends on the outcome, the consequences of the rules, and then we'll judge those. And if it's good or bad, that's how we're going to judge the morality of a situation. So the example that I always use when I'm working with high schoolers, because it's very simple and very easy, is never lie. That's a good rule, right? We should never lie. And we get taught this as kids. We're all very like deontologists as children. It's good to make deontological children because they respond to rules. It's hard because the world is complex. So you give them a lot of rules and then they get into high school and we give them these rules. That's usually around the time when I meet them for this thing called the ethics bowl, which I, I would love to talk about separately, but never lie. That's a good rule, right? And then they're like, yeah, great rule. Never lie. When should you ever lie? And then it's very easy, of course. And like the great example is, well, let's say you're hiding Jews under the floorboards and it's the Holocaust and a Nazi knocks on your door and says, are you hiding any Jews? should you lie to that Nazi? And suddenly their eyes light up and they're like, oh, wow, like I'm a consequentialist. And you're like, okay, great. Like now you're seeing how confusing this could be. Like why lie in one situation and not the other situation? And you get into these rabbit holes and there's a whole bunch of ancestors of deontology and descendants, I should say, of deontology and consequentialism that are interesting. You could talk about utilitarianism and virtue ethics and all kinds of wrinkles in between and all these things. And it gets sort of interesting if you go into those, but really it's those two directions. It's there's a rule or then it matters. And the reason I bring this up in the context of sort of the political sort of conversation we're having is I think there's a common, at least it happened to me and I think it happens to everyone, is we're pretty strong in our deontological moral stances of the world when we're high schoolers and maybe then into college if we go there of like, this is just right or this is just wrong. Whether we get that from our politics or our religion or our parents or whatever, we enter the world in that kind of space. And they might even be good rules. You might have a very strong moral conviction about something that is just wrong. 
And you don't need to think about it any deeper than that. You can if you want, but you don't need to. And then you get out of college and you enter this, as we keep saying, this sort of like libertarian global economy system that is working pretty well, we're told out there. And then you suddenly are in this system where you might find yourself being offered some money or first time job and you need to pay your rent for a company that produces something that you're not so like thrilled about, or you think might even do harm in the world. It could be something obvious. I often use the example of like a cigarette company offering me a filmmaker money to make a film for them, which I haven't done, (laughs) but I don't know how I would respond if I was given the chance, but it could be anything. It could be a small thing of working for some company that's making some product that you think is a little exploitive or a little over overpriced, or maybe they make their product in with sweatshop labor in the Philippines. And suddenly all of your I would say very liberal sounding moral deontological stances start to slip a little more towards that. Well, it depends, right? Like the world is complicated and I'm a consequentialist a little bit when it comes to this thing, because the consequences of me doing this, I think are good, or I can't think of another alternative. And you start to slip a little bit. And I think, and maybe this is, you're questioning this a little in your own mind. A lot of people start to wonder if they're conservative and the fact that the graphs show older age groups are more conservative and younger is liberal. It's always an obvious thing of like, well, when did they change? Because people aren't born at 60 years old and suddenly conservative. They presumably were on the graph as a liberal younger. I think a lot of people can fool themselves into thinking that they are conservative at that point. And I think it's too easy of a trick and we're too simplistic between liberal has come to mean, and I think you're pointing to it, this like these strong moral stances that are way too certain of themselves and never question the like, well, it depends kind of second question that conservatives in a lot of ways, maybe accidentally, are a little more familiar with the like, well, it just depends, which might sound surprising because religious conservatives have the certainty of God, but economically in the way they participate in the system, they basically can swap out that God figure that gave them there may be deontological rules with something like the global economy or the corporate sort of world out there. And that just becomes the God that takes care of everything for them. You can start to fool yourself. So I'm talking more about sort of the like business mogul conservatives. And I don't know if you relate to that in any sense, or if your listeners can, but I think it's a really common trajectory that people are going on. And I don't even necessarily have like an answer for it. I will insist that just because you take the money, it doesn't immediately make you some sort of conservative. And then what I fear happens a lot, and maybe you're getting into the Fukuyama stuff, is this trendy new word of classical liberalism or whatever this means is a way to somehow retain the label that you liked as a high schooler and a college kid of being a liberal, but realizing that there were some flaws with it. And really, I think it's a stand in just for sort of like libertarianism and a deference to some sort of system called the global liberal economy that produces good results. And so you're taking that money or participating in that thing is okay because look, the world is a good place. It's that greed is good kind of mantra. And I think it is a way, again, back to this initial thing of belief, is to put something between yourself and the world that is actually or maybe even just your own failings, you thought something about yourself, that you would stand up to these things. You knew, always knew how you were going to answer the trolley problem. You knew you were going to have these ideals. And then you didn't. And instead of facing the cold, hard truth of like, you didn't face up to your ideals, 
you didn't fail them. You just adopted a different belief that goes between them of something like liberalism or libertarianism, and still you're a liberal. And so I think to backtrack that all the way, we're doing a big disservice to younger liberals before they face these dilemmas to really confuse and complicate the certainty of that liberal certainty that you're pointing to of deontology of knowing that there are just right and wrongs in the world and racism is always wrong and so that's the worst evil and so that's what that is that's what anti-immigration is right we're doing a disservice to not have more complicated nuanced conversations at a younger age which is why a lot of the work i do is actually trying to get these conversations to younger and younger audiences but whatever audience you're catching and whoever's listening whatever your age at there's never too late to start but i think we're missing a lot of people in sort of those late teenage, early 20s years, and it's hurting us politically, certainly. The conservatism that I was familiar with when I was kind of coming of age, which is, I think, was right around the time you were starting to second guess labels mm-hmm. post 9-11. I was just kind of exiting high school, entering college around that time. Mm-hmm. And back then, conservatives, the people on the right, those were the people who thought they knew all the answers. And those were the people who had morals for every single aspect of life and told you what music to listen to and what was sinful and what wasn't, right? And as I began to fall away from my faith and I started seeing those people as kind of stand-ins for the kind of rigid theological rule setting of what was right and wrong, I tried to run away as fast as I could from anything that was telling me this is the way you have to live your life, right? Mm -hmm. And I went through kind of a a rather hardcore libertarian phase Mm -hmm. in the mid-2000s and went through like a a year of really liking Ron Paul, for instance, because the state became kind of a stand-in for Mm -hmm. God. And I was of the belief of no one, whether you know man or God, through the power of the state or the power of the church, should be able to tell anyone how to live their life, right? And there was this great book called Ain't nobody's business if you do. I'm blanking on the name of the author. He was a gay man, passed away of AIDS in the, I think, late 90s, I think. But it was like this kind of libertarian like manifesto of this idea of like, no one should be able to tell you how you should be living your life because your life is yours to live and you only have the one. And that eventually kind of transitioned into liberalism because I realized that NATO matters and places like the UN and healthcare Mm. are important. But It definitely seems over the last few years that that kind of moral certainty and the rigidity of knowing exactly what is right at all times, and if you dare go against what the dogma of the day is, you will be cast out as a heretic, is something that was very familiar to me as I was struggling with my faith in the early 2000s and friends of mine who were at the church whenever I would go to them with questions, instead of welcoming me in, would chide me for having them. Yeah, And it seems like that is happening today. And it worries me, right? Because I don't mind if aspects of the right start becoming like, hey, we're the cool kids and we'll let anyone in. Like, that's fine. If the right wants to become a bigger tent and they want to be more liberal on things like gay rights and abortion and all those other things, I think that is an unassailed good. Mm -hmm. But I don't want the left or liberals to forego those things and they only are now on the right. I think that that's not good for society and I don't think that's good for liberalism. Yeah, I think it might flip again. It might take a decade, but yeah, I was joking with my fiance that it seems like the most punk rock thing you could do right now is actually be a conservative if you were like on high school. I mean, there was like early hints of that when I was a kid. Oh yeah, they have the best memes right now. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. And because it's like there's counterculture, there's always sort of this angsty rebel without a cause. What are you rebelling against? What do you got? It's like the thing to rebel against now is this like lefty mainstream kind of thing. When I was a, in high school, actually, there was a, I don't know if it's still there, but the straight edge movement started happening, which was these kids would draw like black X's oh, yeah. on their wrists, on their hands. I don't know if they mm-hmm. still do it. And their deontological rules, as it were, which was interesting, was like never smoke, never drink. It was sort of, it was the straight edge thing, but they were sort of like punky, cool kids. And we were like, oh, wow, like what are those kids doing over there? And it's like, they're straight edge. It had this cool name, but they were like the most conservative kind of like lifestyles you could imagine. And I think there's a weird version of that, even with like the Proud Boys and stuff, yep. which, you know, I think are, are fools. But again, if you get underneath it, wasn't it Gavin McGinnis started that with almost like a, like as a no- joke. It was a no masturbation kind of challenge with men. It was very like, yeah, it was almost a joke. It brings up this other point that I wanted to touch on that we've been sort of dancing around of, again, like how people are getting meaning because we're at such an interesting turning point. I don't know which way it goes, but I often wonder this. I don't know how you feel about it. I wonder if the nature of the problems and threats that we face as a species, this is that word we again, are being recognized. I'm talking automation, taking human jobs away now. I'm talking global warming. I'm talking international terrorism. I'm talking a pandemic. Are problems that inherently are best solved, and maybe there's arguments about this, but seem to be inherently best solved by a kind of global cooperation which immediately lights the red flags, as you were sort of referencing before, in the conservative or libertarian mindset of like global governance and this like, oh, one government and one currency and all the conspiracy theories start to go, the don't tread on me meme in all of us that we've been told to really lean into, especially as Americans, is I think facing a bit of an existential crisis in itself that's no like liberals patting themselves on the back of being like, we told you so, but it kind of is, I think, facing a problem. It's hard. This meme that's going around of like, there's no libertarians in a pandemic is a bit of a funny joke, but I think kind of true. And full disclosure, at the beginning of the pandemic, some of my libertarian friends who have fairly big platforms, like <laughs> were kind of freaking out and calling me if I would poke them a little bit. I think they knew like this is a threat to their philosophy in a pretty major way. And so how are we going to balance a world that really does require some fairly significant global cooperation? I don't think we could turn back. We can't get the toothpaste back on the tube of globalization or global warming. We can't forget that we don't know our climate change, that it's happening and that it's a problem. We might be able to come up with technical solves for it, but how are we going to face these problems? How do you get out of a pandemic if the world doesn't cooperate and we're seeing the cracks that are happening now? The problem of the commons has gotten so big where the commons is the entire world now. So these conversations are going global. They're just new, as you kept saying, and it's a very underrated point of how fast this is all changing. Just 300 years ago, the world that you were born into and the world that you died, which may have only been 60 years apart (laughs) on average at that time, looked pretty similar. You had like the same kind of technology. You probably did a very similar job your whole life. You knew kind of the same kind of people. You probably didn't move around that far. It's an underrated, but as you said, simple point of just how quickly this is all changing. So the problem of the commons 
300, 400, 500 years ago really was a problem of something you can almost see. The example that came to my mind of like a sheep's meadow, I was literally thinking of like Central Park in New York City, which was a sheep's meadow. And it had that for hundreds of years. That was an actual commons they had to solve. All of that has gone global and all of that has gotten very, very difficult for, I think, a individual and this liberal individual to understand and participate in. It's so distant from us. It's so far from us. It's hard to see things like climate change. Maybe it's getting a little more tangible. It's hard to see things like a global economy. It's hard to see this pandemic. It's literally invisible most of the time. These are things that you made this point before that we didn't evolve naturally and our politics didn't evolve to address. And so we're trying to invent a lot of things on the fly here that on their face feel pretty at odds with sort of the cowboy libertarian don't tread on me philosophy or conservative philosophy. And again, to that point about humility, we might really make a mess of it. I wanted to try to bring like this down again to a tangible level with something like that I really care quite a bit about, about abortion, which is like a hot button issue, which I still think has this definitive split between liberal and conservative or left and right that makes sense. But our conversation around it is so wrong. If you allow me to sort of just like lay it out a tiny bit, I think it's a really good example of why as maybe a philosophical thinker, I'm constantly frustrated with the noisy yelling and partisanship, and we're probably going to see it with abortion. So if you think this is an old conversation, clearly it's back. We have a conservative bench. We might see Roe v. Wade on the table again. For the most part, you'll often hear a lot of people who proclaim to be pro-life as saying it's murder, right? It's murder of a child. Life starts at conception baby killers, you'll start to hear this very moralized language about liberals. Some people justified their Trump vote because he was on paper pro-life in this kind of way. And really, I think that's total BS. I'm asking people to translate that deeper. That is not actually what most of them believe or mean. And it's a very easy thing to pop, which is most pro-lifers make an exception for rape and incest. If a parent rapes their child and the child gets pregnant, would you support them ending the pregnancy? And most of them say like, no, I make exceptions for rape and incest. And right there, you have them. If they were claiming to be that this is murder, you have them being like, well, the baby didn't ask to be conceived. So this is the murder of that baby, right? And like, it's a paralyzing thought. And I don't mean that to win an argument. What I mean is that what is really happening there is it proves what they care about cosmically, and I'm going to make the secular defense of this. This is like the point I'm going to try to get to about the hubris. What they really are arguing for cosmically is that there are consequences for our actions. If you give them two cases, one case of, let's say, a young girl who's partying too much and is irresponsible and sleeps with a lot of men and is unprotected sex, and then she happens to get pregnant and says, oh, I don't want to have a baby. That's too much responsibility. Let me just end it. They hate that, right? That's like, no. They'll say like it's murder because they want to make some sort of deontological maybe God case for their position, but they'll say, no, like that's terrible. You can't do that. Versus the woman who gets like raped while jogging in the park by a stranger. And is like, I don't want to give birth to the baby of my rapist. So I'm going to get an abortion. They react very differently between the two. And it just proves the point of like, what is that? What's that variable? It's a very easy way to see that the variable there was the behavior of the mother or the pregnant woman. And what they fear ultimately is a world where 
back to that Nietzsche quote, where we have stepped into the place of God, who is the ultimate judge in the sky and ultimately delivers you what you deserve. Whether you get it in this lifetime or the next lifetime, it all comes out in the wash. Your sins will be paid for in hell and your good deeds are rewarded in heaven or here on earth, karma, whatever, you'll get good things for what you did and bad things for what you did wrong. If you engage in this behavior, you might get pregnant and then you have a kid and that's your responsibility. They would never put it that way, right? They would say, this kid is a blessing and and maybe they'll even be right. Like some of the secular arguments or the consequential arguments, maybe they'll be right that having the kid will suddenly like spur this kind of responsibility in the mother and she'll get her act together and she'll find all this meaning and she'll be a great member of society and she'll find happiness. That might happen. Like those arguments shouldn't be dismissed so easily. But what is important to note is that the argument has always been about actions and consequences and the fear of a world where there are no consequences for our actions. This is why, to stop right there, people, it drives me crazy that they get confused that pro-lifers are oftentimes pro-death penalty. And they're like, how could that be? Aren't you pro-life? They make these like silly jokes about it. And it's like, no, don't you see? This is about actions and consequences. The yeah, they're pro-consequence. Pro-consequence. The person committed a murder or a terrible crime or raped someone. And so the consequence is that we put them to death. That's the action and the consequence. They're very punitive in that way. And God, Christian God especially, and the Jewish God as well, are pretty punitive gods in that way. Like that's the kind of world that makes sense to them. And again, there's a secular argument to make for that world. There's a world where there are no actions for our consequences, especially sort of our risky or bad behavior. Is that a good world? I don't know. How does that play out in the end consequentially? It might be terrible. They might be right. I don't know. <laughs> or are they not right? And so what I try to do, and I wrote a whole essay about abortion because it means a lot to me, is how do we have more conversations about those things? Because even me, as someone who's pro-choice as you can get, I can make, in the steel man, the best secular argument for the, call it the pro-life position, but as we're saying, sort of the pro-consequence position, whatever that means, and see how that plays out. But very few people are having those conversations. And as you've mentioned earlier, maybe our social media algorithms or our media generally does not encourage those kind of conversations. It pushes it more towards the noisy, whose team are you on? And suddenly this person's calling this person a baby killer, and this person's calling this person a woman hater or something. And then there's just like no hope of actually like a meaningful conversation. But what I laid out there is really, I think, back to that like, wait, who's in charge here, God or humans? That is generally an interesting conversation and a true philosophical split that leads to political stances. But the philosophical split is beneath that. It's always like we spend so much time talking about the symbols and economics and the political names and parties and stuff. And we very rarely dive below it to find where was the philosophical split that gave rise to the emergent property, if you will, of these political fights that we're in, which sometimes are urgent and we need to have them. But most times is not really where you're going to get to the root of our conversations. So yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. And it all leads back to that stupid sign, the in this house we believe, right? Because <laughs> that sign may as well be standing across from a scarecrow because no one holds the views that are opposite to the views espoused on that sign. Hmm. And it's why I, for instance, I was really, that a straw man joke, but that's good. Yeah. That's good. I appreciate it as a philosophic, like that was great. Good gold star for you. I do what I can, yeah. but it's why, for instance, just to go on the pro consequences bend, I think you're really onto something there. So 100% cosine and I will 
steal it. But steal it, what, why I think why I think it's so important is because it illuminates so many issues on both mm-hmm. the right, and it also illuminates yeah. so many ways the left will obscure actual discussion by pretending that they don't understand the right when I actually think that they do. So yeah. one of the things that really, really annoys me is how the left talks about immigration by just using the word immigration and not discerning between legal and illegal or undocumented, however you want to call it, immigration, right? They've just obliterated the distinction and just talk immigration. And then they say that the right is anti-immigration, which just isn't true. If you know anyone on the right, and I have quite a few family members who are squarely on the right, police officers, CHP, army veterans, you know, like a lot of people who live in the countryside Mm -hmm. who own guns, pretty squarely on the right and no problem with legal immigration at all. They work Mm -hmm. alongside immigrants in their day-to-day lives. They are in diverse police squads. There is nothing for me to lose by telling the truth here and nothing for me to gain by lying. I've never heard them say anything in ill will against a person of color or an immigrant. What they are very much so though is pro-consequence for quote-unquote bad behavior or bad decisions. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of conservatives view or how a lot of conservatives view illegal immigration is through a lens of fairness and unfairness in the same way that they'll view, let's say, a topic like abortion, like you were saying, I think. And of course, there's always going to be the outliers. I definitely think there are people who are very, very religious. Yeah, it's about like 16% Yeah, actually do say in all cases have the baby, including like rape of a family member. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, there are going to be people who are either xenophobic or for whatever reason, just want no immigration whatsoever, which I just wish they would look back a little in their family tree (laughs) and see that they were once immigrants too. But anyway, what this all means is, is that when the left obliterates the distinctions between different sides of a topic, they foreclose conversation with the right on terms that can actually move towards something meaningful. Same thing with healthcare, right? A lot of people on the right will be against something like universal healthcare, not because they want people to die, which is, of course, what the left says and how it characterizes it. Oh, people on the right, they just want you to die from cancer or whatever. That's literally not true. Hmm. What people on the right, the pro-consequence right, they can't wrap their minds around for understandable psychological reasons. The idea that if they're living a healthy life and they're doing the things the right way, that they may have to foot the bill for someone who is making mistakes. Now, where this kind of collides is, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, the fundamental attribution error. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or basically the idea that when we see someone else doing something that we like, let's say disapprove of, like running a red light, because we can't see inside that person's mind, we automatically assume that they're running that red light because of a fault of character. Whereas when we do it, because we know the entire arc of our lives and we know everything that led up to making that decision to run the red light, we know that it's not because of a fault of character, but because of a fault of circumstance, right? We were running late to see our kids' performance in the school play, or we needed to get to the hospital quickly because our wife was about to go into labor. Whatever the situation may be, we ran the red light not because we're a bad person, but because we were put into a circumstance in which we had to do that thing. But if we don't know who the person is and we see them running a red light, well, they're just a jerk, Jay. And so I think what's colliding here with the pro-consequence right is that they're not potentially understanding that most people, I would say the overwhelming majority of people, if they make a bad life choice, let's say in regards to their health care, right? Not something like cancer, but let's say they're overweight, right? 
most people don't want to be overweight. Right. Most people get there because either they were raised in an environment in which eating healthy wasn't something that was available to them or something that wasn't instilled in them, or they're dealing with depression. This is something that I'm very familiar with. I've struggled with weight because mm -hmm. of issues relating to clinical depression, right? And so I'm more forgiving of myself sometimes than I am of others because I know what I went through. And I think that that in some ways is a natural human instinct that is just more prevalent, let's say, on the right side of the spectrum. And I think if the left could be a little more generous in understanding where the right is coming from and understanding that the right is thinking more about consequences and wanting to promote, quote unquote, good behavior, yeah, they could be more productive in passing legislation and getting to the places that the left wants to get. And if the right could be a little more understanding and empathetic of the people who make the quote unquote bad decisions and seeing those people in the same way that they see themselves and could be as generous with, let's say, the person who because of falling on hard times or being raised in a single parent household or jumping around the foster care system, committed a crime, let's say when they were 17 or 18 years old, either robbery or even potentially something worse. If the right could see that that is not some deep flaw of human character, but perhaps a culmination of experiences that that person involuntarily oftentimes had, then they could be more generous as well. And we could all left and right make more progress towards a better society that I know deep down everyone wants. Yeah. But we're not having that conversation. We're doing all this bullcrap sloganeering, yeah. which doesn't get us anywhere. Yeah. You're also getting to sort of some of, again, the God stuff of free will versus not. I mean, the... The donut question. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> the one that I wrote up. But the argument of we are all victims of the universe we didn't choose anything from our genes to our family to our circumstance to the wealth that our parents had to everything else is true and so a little more again humility and as you're pointing to compassion that everybody is a victim of the universe or a, <laughs> a winner of the universe if they're having a good time but really isn't cosmically responsible for it can go a long way towards building a more compassionate and liberal society there's a this book i think is making a really big splash and i just started it actually my fiance read it but michael sandel's new book the tyranny of meritocracy i think is going to go a long way towards a lot of these conversations and his general thesis as far as i understand it so far is about this kind of trick that we almost play on ourselves of thinking that we deserve what we get whether that's good like you go to college and you get a good job and so you deserve it versus you don't and then that person doesn't deserve it and this is almost a pro consequence kind of view that you're pointing to on the left really because in a lot of ways that liberal left is, is winning a lot of globalism as it were but the same trap of libertarian free will ought to pop that balloon as well and the fact that he's writing a lot about income mobility through classes is really low in this country right now the stories of rising from the bottom and getting to the top that we all want to believe are possible are actually getting more and more rare in this country and i think people are sensing that that there is this class that they cannot access. And the irony of the book, of course, is that it's under the guise of this meritocratic sort of system that you end up where you deserve. And that can be incredibly shame-inducing for people who don't happen to end up somewhere good because it's like, well, that's what you deserve. Yeah, to your point of like, well, we're all sort of, no one really chose any of that of where they deserved at any point. Can we somehow 
massage that problem and work on mobility, whatever that is. If it is about the American dream and mobility being the thing, if we're trying to really do this equality of opportunity line that everyone keeps rolling out here, well, I don't know. I think it's going to take a lot of work, especially given the economy that we have. But what I'm more interested in all of those conversations also is, again, talking less about the economy and less about sort of fixing the economy will fix all of our, call it spiritual problems. I'm really interested in more of the conversation about the hubris of the left, which is shaping the world for the, call it the Trumpers, the people who are angry about it. They didn't ask to be in this world. We didn't ask them, but we just keep building it for them and telling them that they're immoral if they resist it. I think whatever that looks like, that really has to stop. And to go back to Hillary Clinton, she, for whatever reason, just like maybe it was just her tone of voice was like the poster child, I think, of that kind of bad communication. I don't know how we fix that. We'll see how Joe works out now. I'm not a huge fan of Kamala's communication, frankly, as his VP. It really worries me that she shares a lot of that same kind of attitude. But no one's having those conversations at that level. No one's talking about their respect or whatever. This other great quote that I've been using a lot lately from Jane Jacobs, who's a historian of New York and was critical of Robert Moses, if anybody knows any of that history. It's this great little phrase of the utopian minders of other people's leisure. And it's such a great phrase because it leaps off the page as it is. And I think you could draw the line of who's who in that conversation right now, the utopian minders of other people's leisure of what kind of leisure am I talking about there? Donald Trump himself came through the WWE World Wrestling Federation, which if you go to an event, you could be in Maine, somewhere far north of the Mason-Dixon line, and you'll see Confederate flags flying at a WWE event. The liberals shudder and clutch their pearls at this like awful you know, men in spandex sweating and body slamming each other and drinking Budweiser. And they could be at a monster truck rally, whatever that is. And us utopian minders are like, don't worry, we'll get this out of your life soon. We'll fix all of this for you. You'll be drinking champagne at a party and talking about <laughs> philosophy <laughs> like this podcast in no time. And you'll have a self-driving car take you there. So don't worry, you won't get any, even an offender bender. And there's an attitude of that, that we've sort of adopted, maybe unknowingly, but adopted for far too long. It shows up in things like gun rights, of course, school shootings and the awful conversations that never seem to happen after that. It just shows up everywhere else. We're having this culture war when really we should be talking about what those symbols come from, what our anxieties and the fights we're really trying to have. Like we all need a therapist, <laughs> whoever that could be. We all need like a global therapist to sit everyone down and like a couples therapist of being like, okay, what's really going on here? You're fighting about the dishes, but clearly it's not about the sponge. You're having issues about jealousy or the way he talks to you or the way that she does this thing or whatever. Like that's what we need as a society somehow. <laughs> and, and maybe that's what we're we're sort of hoping we can find or elect or find someone to help us out with. Social media is the worst place, it seems to me, to have that therapy session. So where that is, where we find that, if it's conversations like this one, or I don't know what that looks like, but someone needs to invent it because <laughs> I'm tired of fighting about the dishes and the dumb Confederate flag and whether it was a white lash that all that kind of crap is just like, shut up. 
let's actually fix this relationship or let's get a divorce, which I don't know what that looks like either. So, Oh gosh, I think we tried that once. It didn't work out too well. Yeah. And that's not even just the country one, but yeah, I'm saying we can't get a divorce because if we actually get a divorce globally, whatever that looks like, like a snapback to nationalism in some sort of aggressive Steve Bannon way or whatever his fever dream is there, it's all well and good. It might feel good for the people in WWE who are wrestling. They might feel like they won that victory. And again, it might be sort of the middle finger to us people who told them that they just had to lose. But coronavirus doesn't care. You know what I mean? And climate change doesn't care. And global terrorism doesn't care. We can't get a divorce. We have to figure out how to do this globally. And it might be a tense relationship (laughs) for the married couple that we are as a humanity. But we got to stay together for the sake of the kids. Let's do it for them, at least till they get to college. I don't know where that analogy ended up, but I liked it. And even when we talk about a divorce between the left and the right, which is you hear a lot about online, I mean, it seems depending on where the political winds are blowing, you either hear the right talking about, oh, maybe Texas will secede and all the liberals can leave and we can have our red state. Or you'll hear the liberals talking about, oh, you know, we'll combine ourselves with Canada. And I love how they always like, just assume Canada just has no say in it and they're yeah. just going to see we're go still doing it. it. We're just yeah. demanding other people go along with our, <laughs> our liberal imperialism. Yeah. But anyone who says that they want to live in an all red or an all blue fantasy land, trust me, you don't want it. You don't. Because yeah. if it's an all right fantasy world, you're going to get footloose. <laughs> and if it's an all left fantasy world, you're going to get San Francisco, which is liberal mm-hmm. footloose, where you have heroin needles like on the streets. There's that famous video of the mayor of San Francisco, London Breed, it was like a week after she got elected and she's talking about cleaning up the streets or whatever. She's walking literally by a guy, it's on camera, who is shooting up, I think, heroin yeah. on the streets as she's being yeah. interviewed. Yeah. And whatever you think you might want, you don't want it because you want the person who's going to be pushing the boundaries of what to create yeah. and how to yeah. make a new society in the same way that you also want chief of creativity in your technology business, but you also want a chief of operations. Yeah, You want someone who can order all of the things that you're creating and you also want someone pushing you forward. Yeah. But if you have someone who's just pushing you forward, but no one who's telling you how to actually make those ideas into widgets on machines that can then be passed along to the customers, you're not going to have a business that's successful. Yeah. And if you only have a chief of operations, but no one who's telling the chief of operations what to eventually build, you're not going to have a successful company. And I think society is sort of the same way. Yeah. Another one of my attempts to redefine or banish this left-right balancing beam that I just like feel like has lost meaning for a lot of people is I think we as a society or even individuals, we're pretty much steering away from the things that we're afraid of more so than steering towards things that we're confident will work. So with that left-right thing, I've proposed like another thing of, can we just have a spectrum of like fear of George Orwell on one side versus fear of of Huxley on the other? And if people know the references, they probably do. Orwell with 1984 was imagining, I would say, like totalitarian right-wing regime. It's funny how everybody is sure it's the other guy's team. It's a government that is maybe a little China-ish, like super surveillance, heavy-handed state, indoctrination. Obviously, there's versions of this that you can see on the left, but I think that's what Huxley was generally talking about. But if you put it as sort of the anti-freedom world of George Orwell, where everything is dictated by this oppressive state, that's George Orwell's nightmare. And then Huxley's nightmare was more of a, there's this thing called Soma in Brave New World that sounds like an incredibly cool drug, like some MDMA stuff that makes you have these incredibly profound feelings of pleasantness and you feel great. It's like a heroin type thing. 
And whenever there's anything kind of unpleasant for the people in this world, they shoot up the Soma. It's like a spray they could do or whatever. And they sort of just drug out and Zen out and everything's fine, right? So like, what's wrong with that world? Of course, there's genetic engineering that happens in that world as well. But it's almost, you could see a balance of like, are we too much freedom on one side that Huxley worried about? Or is it like the crushing of freedom sort of militaristically on the other side that Orwell worried about? And clearly, if you're terrified of Orwell, you're steering towards this freedom thing all the time. And you generally would be sort of conservative and the don't tread on me kind of stuff is like, don't George Orwell, all of us, this is 1984 all over again, you know, don't tell me what to do. And that's fine. And then the fear of Huxley is like, you're steering away from that being like, man, if we all have freedom, we're all just going to like be doing drugs all the time or just like getting drunk or overeating or we're never going to find real meaning. And maybe I'm a bit of a like, I'm paying more attention these days to the dystopia futures of things like WALL-E, if you want a modern thing from Pixar, where everybody was plugged into these pleasure machines, but really kind of felt a little hollow in it. And that kind of fear is, are we just going to get like better virtual reality headsets? And then we're all just going to plug in and sort of check out of life. And it's going to just be constant entertainment and candy for us that sort of subdues us. So if you're scared of that world, do you go more towards the other side of like, we need to restrict the freedoms for people because they don't know what they're doing on their own. They're all going to walk off of cliffs and they have no meaning in their lives. And so I think there's something to that spectrum of where you are, if you're more afraid of Huxley or more afraid of Orwell, and clearly you could sort of swim between the two at all times. But to your point, like we kind of need each other. We need a reminder because we can swerve way too far towards one of them at any given time. If you imagine all, all of us as sort of like one big collective organism, well, there's part of us that are kind of nervous when the car is going too fast and wants us to hit the brakes a little bit. And there's other parts of us that say like, no, 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 just keep driving faster. If we could find that balancing act of whatever marriage this is going to be, we're not just going to eliminate people or send them to some magical island where we never need to see them again. We have to somehow have a conversation where we're grateful for each other's philosophical inclinations or psychological sort of leanings, as it were, that we can find our way to steer towards some of this. And yes, the difficult conversations that I keep alluding to, I'm not trying to cop out of hard conversations. Sometimes there are certain parts of our psyche that are more helpful than others when it comes to a certain challenge, when it comes to a problem that we're trying to solve globally or even individualistically, there are certain parts of our psyches that we're going to need to listen to and deploy if we're going to actually feel good about it or overcome it or succeed it. This was not some sort of kumbaya, can't we all just get along? No, we have difficult conversations to have, but we should be grateful for each other, for being in the room and having them. Like you said, a world of all of one of them and none of the other is Huxley's nightmare or Orwell's nightmare. It's a nightmare either way. We have enough science fiction and then enough real history that matches the science fiction that inspires it to know like it's a stupid joke, like you're saying that you could sort of make online or like, let's have another civil war. It's not the answer. It's not sustainable in sort of that global sense. So however we find that, help me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you're absolutely right. And the question is, how do we find it? Yeah. There was something that you mentioned earlier about arguing about the dishes when oftentimes that's not what we're actually arguing about, right? If you're anyone who's ever been in a relationship, whether romantic or otherwise, a friendship, familial, girlfriend, boyfriend, partner, oftentimes we'll argue with them about one thing. When in fact, what we're getting at, either subconsciously, unconsciously, oftentimes we don't even know yeah. why we're arguing about the things that we're arguing about. 
we're actually trying to get to something deeper that sometimes we're not even aware of. It reminds me of this book by David Mamet called On Directing Film. Hmm. Have you read it? No, but yeah. I pulled it out last night because I was thinking about our conversation and I hadn't read it in maybe 12 or 13 years, but I went to chapter four. It's a very small book. It's I think 100 pages or less. And what it is, he transcribed a series of lectures that he gave at a university in the late 80s, early 90s. And he kind of used a Socratic method to kind of pull out of his students what makes a good film, what makes a good scene, how you should direct actors, and how you should write a story. And Mamet is a bit too sparse for my tastes. I like his movies, but he's very dedicated to the sparse nature of his direction and his screenwriting. Because for Mamet, the only thing that matters is the action. The only thing that matters is what the character is doing in a scene and how the shot is serving the action of the character and what they're doing. If the character's motivation is to get to class, then all he's going to ask the actor to do is walk to the door of the classroom and open the door and walk in. And he's not mm-hmm. going to talk about previous circumstance or the fight that he had with his mother or any of those other things, because to Mamet, the only thing that matters is the action. But there's this dialectic that he has with his students in chapter four that I want to just touch on briefly here, because I think it really does get at something fundamental that is missing from our societal conversation that you kind of touched on here, and also in your conversation with Rock and in your essay. Mm-hmm. So in his book on directing film, what matters so much to the story in addition to the action, and perhaps what matters more than the action itself is the why behind the action, because it informs shot choice. And to Mamet, shot choice is as vital as character action. And so Mamet, in the book, he starts a dialectic with his students about a hypothetical narrative scenario. Quote, here's a story, he says, once there was a farmer who wanted to sell a pig. Now, how do you open the film? What are the shots? How do you make up your shot list? And that's the end of the quote. And so the students in his class began to throw out ideas. And Mamet kind of pokes and prods at the reasoning behind their suggestions. And one student suggests opening on a shot of a for sale sign, indicating that the pig is to be sold. And another suggests opening on a shot of a well-run farm. But Mamet says that these shots don't really tell us what we and the director must know. And he goes on to say to the students, quote, literally on the page, as it is written, the farmer has to sell his pig. What does this mean to the scene? The essence of having to sell one's pig could be many different things. The essence could be a man fell on hard times. The essence could be a man had to leave his ancestral home. A man had to take leave of his best friend. And then a student responds, a man had to do his duty. And then another responds, a man had too many pigs. And then Mamet replies, quote, well, yes, but you're thinking on a different level of abstraction. The point is not the pig, right? The point is, what does the pig mean to the man? A man's business, for example? What might be the meaning of that? A man's business grew too fast for him. What you want to dramatize is not the surface. A man needs to sell his pig, but the essence, what selling the pig means in this story. Why does he need to sell the pig? The more specifically you think about the nature of the story, the more you can think of the essence of the scene rather than the appearance of the scene. Hmm. then the easier it will be to find the images. It's a lot easier to find specific images for, quote, a man fell on reduced circumstances than for, quote, once there was a man who had to sell a pig. Jung wrote that one can't stand aloof from the images, the stories of the person who's being analyzed. One has to enter into them. If you enter into them, they'll mean something to you. If you don't enter into them, then your subconscious will never work. You'll never come up with anything that the audience couldn't have thought of better at home, end quote. And so to understand why the man is selling the pig, you have to understand what the pig means to the man. Yeah. And so when we talk about things like immigration, healthcare, abortion, all these other things, like that's the pig. 
Right. But like what's behind the pig? <laughs> and so that's why social media gets so exhausting. That's why our CNN 24 hour news cycles are so exhausting because it's just pig, 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 pig. But what's behind it? Yeah, we need to find that as a species and as a nation, I guess. But what does all of this mean to us? These are big questions, I know. And that was a great quote. I love the story. I totally get the analogy. I don't know where we have this conversation. Maybe it's the Nietzsche thing. Maybe he's still just sort of listening into this podcast from, from beyond the grave and laughing. But Shout out to Nietzsche. Yeah. Because sometimes when I'm talking about these bigger things of like, does it feel hollow to participate in some global, huge economy that we're told is leading to good results, but we kind of can't see it or feel it on a day-to-day -day basis? Does it feel that good to sit at a computer and move pixels around like probably a lot of us are doing right now if you're lucky enough to still have work and sort of in the back of your mind know like, well, I'm participating in this giant thing called progress, <laughs> whatever that means. But the question is like, what does that mean? Like I just sort of said, like, what are we progressing towards? What's the end goal here? What are we really trying to do or accomplish on a grand scale, on an individual scale? I think we've been operating on this in this mode, which is very admirable, that the progress we were trying to make, the answer to that question for the last couple hundred years has been, well, it's to like make sure everybody is okay, like has enough food and has enough chance to do something. We'll talk about that sentence in a second, but a chance to do something, get out of extreme poverty, escape the fact that the universe is trying to kill you and starve you all the time, which again is just like get you enough calories get you some safety and get you some sort of stability in your life, which is escaping extreme poverty in the abstract sense. That was the purpose of that, and which is a pretty good secular answer, right? I didn't have to invoke God for any of that. It was a secular, practical, like first things first, let's get everybody fed kind of answer. And as you pointed out, we're not quite there yet. We're almost there though. Like 13% of the world is still in extreme poverty and probably a good portion above that is not at what you would call like okayness, but at least they can survive. I'm all for like UBI, how we get there, whatever that really means. But at some point, at some point then, that answer is not even going to fly anymore. Like the characters in Wally -E or in Brave New World would have no idea what the hell I was just talking about right? Because they're like, we did that. We did that a long time ago. Someone else did that. Like, that sounds like a terrible world. And again, to sort of lean on the Stephen Pinkers of the world, they were right. Like, <laughs> you don't want to go back in time to that world for very long. It might be fun to be like a hunter gatherer for like a week on vacation in some like time machine bureau, but you don't want to stay there for too long or else you're going to like die of diarrhea or something. <laughs> yes, there's problems in that world that we should solve and are solving and continue to solve. But don't you feel that a lot of us are getting the sense that like, now what? And maybe, oh, yeah. yeah well, look, look at who's cosplaying. Yeah. The people in Antifa or the people who stormed the Capitol. Yeah. Or the people in Occupy Wall Street. Yeah. Those weren't poor people. They weren't poor people, they're, right? They're middle class, bored, oftentimes college educated people who, and this is not excusing any of the violence or any sure, of the other things sure. that happened, right? But I think that a lot of it and of course, a good portion of it is fueled by conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. But even that, I think it's hinged. Just cover. It's the dishes. Yeah, still. yeah, it's the dishes, right? It's the pig. Yeah. People need meaning. And yeah. in the absence of real conflict, and whether that's conflict against nature, conflict against man, conflict against the self needing to survive and finding sustenance in order to make it day to day, mm -hmm. what do you put in the void that is left 
when you have everything you could possibly need to survive. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you went to like film and cause I think there's a lot to learn from obviously being a media critic and maybe you and I both in like in the media of producing things, there's a lot to learn from the kind of art that a society produces and where their anxieties are and stuff. And there's a romanticization of Lord of the Rings wasn't real history, I know, but sort of something that feels like historical and knights and like these brave warriors. And obviously on a smaller scale, one of the possible and maybe totally understandable instincts is when you might start feeling some of that anxiety I laid out in the last answer of like, well, what now is to demand that there still are real battles to fight. And there are, again, like you and I are not going to dismiss all of this, but it's very easy to look back at like maybe our parents or the previous generation of being like, oh, they fought Vietnam. That was like a, that was a war to fight, like a little battle that they could win and get some glory and fight and make some change. So like, what's ours? Like, this is a common thing, but to insist that we're still fighting this thing, or there's really an evil that you're fighting right now. Like that's one way to try to solve the problem is to demand that the Vietnam war is still going on. That's one way to address that existential kind of angst is to demand that there still are these really big battles to fight and there are and we'll find them like you could devote your life to trying to solve the Uyghur genocide right now and that would be noble and some of us should do it we should all be sort of a part of that there are things to fight but at some point like you're saying like this runs a little thin and you have to look a little further for them but what's nagging there is putting off the stuff that really matters. And this, again, we're talking in these big terms, sort of like species level stuff, but this happens on individual lives still. The problems of how do you lead a meaningful life are eternal problems and still there. And then we have to get around to sort of addressing them and getting honest with them. But what matters to an individual life is to matter to other people, I think. And a lot of us are discovering that. And then we run into these pseudo political problems of like, well, how do I matter to other people when they don't respect me or they don't listen to me or they're saying something stupid or like, storming a capital? So like, yeah, whatever's going to come next, I think hopefully is not a fearful retreat into what has worked so long which was finding glory and fighting wars or fighting the biggest evil that is in front of you at the moment if we have to invent an enemy i think that's going to be kind of a really depressing place to be especially if the enemy is a bit of a phantom obviously the left and wokeness seems to be doing a lot of that lately it's like how much of this really is as serious as you're saying, or are you just trying to be as cool as your hippie parents who fought against the Vietnam War and won that battle, whatever that looks like? And maybe they're right. This is like hacks part of our psychology. They're like, we need a good old fashioned alien invasion. And then everybody will just like gather together against that evil and we'll finally be united. <laughs> Whether that's true or not, or it comes right now, probably half the world would blame liberals. The other half would blame conservatives of why the aliens came. So I don't think it would even work. But even if it did, it also just feels like a cop out of like, is that really the best we can do? Is that really like the best that we can come up with to unite and try to build something together? Whatever we're aiming this thing towards existence towards is that we have to have something that we're all fighting against. And for me, again, this goes way back to the beginning of our conversation of atheism. Isn't it enough to just have, we are all in a mysterious universe that we didn't ask to be in. And it's complicated and crazy. And again, when you are honest with it, 
I would make a case morally chaotic, <laughs> meaning that good things happen to bad people, bad things happen to good people, and you could do all the rain dances you want and you'll just be fooling yourself into thinking that that is the thing that's causing it. It's deterministic. It's a complex world. Death is real. People appear and then they disappear and it's incredibly crushing. We're all in that thing together. Is that not enough of an enemy to fight for us to gather together? Like, how do we do that on a conversational level? Because that one's not going to go away. If we really need an enemy to fight, well, the question of why is there something rather than nothing is not going to go away. So we'll have that one forever, no matter what we do here. So can we use that one and try to band together somehow and work on that, whatever that looks like? Yeah. I don't know. Stop fighting about the dishes. Stop fighting about the pig. Like you said, what does it mean to us? The alien would just be a really big dish pig analogy (laughs) with this thing we've gone down being like, is that really what it means to the person? Why do we want to defeat the aliens? I don't know, just to survive for the sake of surviving. Like that can't be it. That can't be life, right? Like what if we defeated the alien invasion? Then what we all high five each other and go back to fighting over politics. Like, (laughs) okay. Like that lasted however long it took to beat the aliens. It's like, why did you want to beat the aliens in the first place? Keep asking each other. Why, why are you really after this? Why are you doing this? Why do you oppose abortion? Why are you making an exception for rape and incest? Why, if you're a liberal, are you sure that race is the answer here? Try to get like deeper and deeper into those whys. And maybe we'll find the place where it's being like, oh, wow, we're all worried about the same thing here. It's all the same thing. And you might be right. And we might be right. Let's hash it out. Yeah. As cheesy as it sounds, the real challenge that we could give ourselves in the 21st century is just to learn to love one another and to love ourselves more. Yeah. And the way that we dialogue with one another online and in the media is preventing us from seeing each other and talking with one another in that way, because we're painting one another as these kind of eternal enemies who are standing in the way of the progress that we, our side wants to make, whatever that side might be. But if we can get to the thing behind the thing, if we can get to why the dishes haven't been washed or why the farmer hasn't sold the pig, we can understand that all that anger that I know you've been on the receiving end of on Twitter sometimes when you're just trying to find solutions. And I'm certainly been on the receiving end because I haven't said the right word or I haven't worded it in such a such way. And it's like, why are you angry? What is making you angry? What is making you upset? Why do you feel like you have to say these things to me? Because I've been to therapy. I've been to cognitive behavioral therapy for years. Mm -hmm. And I know that a lot of the times when I was feeling at my worst, it was because I was deeply unhappy about something within myself. And so if we could like that, this sounds so cheesy. It sounds like a a song from the 80s. But like the battlefield that we could wage the war on is if we were able to be more empathetic with one another, whether it's the established population being more empathetic for the the newly arrived immigrant or the left being more understanding for the coal miners instead of telling them to learn to code or if it was the people in the middle of the country who are laughing at the liberal arts students who are a hundred thousand dollars in debt maybe they could be a little kinder and understand that the people who are a hundred thousand dollars in debt with a humanities degree are suffering under the same yoke of neoliberalism false promises that is destroying your farm like we're, we're we're all in this together. And we might be wrong. Like that's all it takes is just some of that 
Yes. And I think there is, I mean, to be specific and political, I think there's some opportunity for Joe Biden to do that because of he's been in politics so long. I hope he gets into some of that in his term, whether it's four years or whatever, where he, you know, something like the crime bill that he signed in the 90s. I hope he comes out and says, like, I was wrong and not in a sort of like kowtowing to the left and then the racism of it, but just actually like that was wrong and I want to fix it and I want to try to do better with it next time. That's like a specific thing. I mean, to bring it to some of those specifics because we've been speaking a little esoterically even if we're talking about solving a problem back to that analogy of like oh this whole big political philosophy that we've been living with for hundreds of years if you look at it as a practical way to solve extreme poverty like cool now i'm just being a consequentialist and you can measure that right like it's somewhat of a measurable quantifiable let's look at the graphs and see how we're doing kind of way to assess it which is great and if your mission is something like racism or blacks being killed by cops or something like that, get it out of that deontological kind of immature high school way to talk about it of like, this is just right. And this is just wrong. And I'm fighting the evil of racism. And that's my language. And like anybody who opposes me is, is a racist or something like this. If you could try to advance that to sort of the, if there is such a thing as like liberal consequentialism being like, the goal is that we're not going to argue about it anymore which is fine. The goal is that we want less blacks killed (laughs) by guns. That's a statistic that has a graph that we all, I would presume, everybody wants to move in the right direction, which is lower. So how do we get that graph to move lower? I'm just speaking in consequential terms. Like we've agreed on the terms and the graph that we're all going to stare at obsessively. And how do we get it to go down? I might be wrong. You might be right. Like, let's figure that out of what strategies we can deploy to make that graph move in the correct direction. And even if, in purely consequential terms, if I make a case being like, Kendi, like, I get your point, you're arguing about the dishes, but I think your strategy is actually going to backfire here. So let's see how that goes. Like, that's not even me. Isn't that like fair? Shouldn't that language not get me cast as some sort of racist, like hater or whatever? Like the woke mobs, have to understand the language of consequentialism of like, Kendi might be right and he might be wrong. Can we agree on the outcomes that we're going for here? We talk too little of ends and too much of means. Exactly. No, it's like a perfect way to put it. And I'll give an anecdote about like, and again, like I, I love Majid Nawaz, although he's gone in a direction that is troubling to me, obviously for a lot of reasons. And I made this film with him and, you know, I think he's probably in some trouble to give that empathy of like why he's running that red light or something. Like, let's not assume too much from the outside. But I remember before making that film, and for some background for people who don't know it or don't know me, was you mentioned that this film I made with Sam Harrison, Majid Nawaz called Islam on the Future of Tolerance. And I was doing a lot of research for that film. And it was in the early stages of, I think, a lot of panic from people like maybe myself or Sam Harris and Majid about the left was really losing this conversation to what we saw was coming of like, the right of let's be honest about Islam and let's promote people who are trying to reform it because it's clearly fueling a lot of terrorism and anger and whatever. And I was in conversation over email. I don't think this is revealing anything nefarious, but with Sally Cohn, who's a commentator on MSNBC, very, very, you would say like woke, far left liberal. And she had written an article about Sharia it quoted Linda Sarsour. A lot of people have been following that conversation for a while. She's like super identity politics, very far left woke commentator. 
And I reached out to her. I was actually interested in trying to get her to maybe even be interviewed in the film or do some like review of it or something. And we never ended up meeting. She sort of gave me a cold shoulder after a few emails and just sort of like pieced out. And I was talking to Majid about Sally Cohn and this kind of like, ah, you know, I'm trying to reach out to people who disagree with you. And he was like, okay with that. But I was a bit, and maybe it should have been a red flag about maybe where Majid would go eventually. I was sure, and I'm sure in my heart of hearts, if you could sit down Sally Cohn and someone like that, if you don't know her, come up with your like most woke sort of person in your mind and have them like design the world that they want to actually live in. And then like you and I do that, or even like a conservative, a Trumper in the middle of America, I bet there's a ton of overlap in those worlds. Like generally people want a peaceful world where people all have a chance to have a freedom and find their own kind of meaning and aren't injuring their neighbors and whatever else it looks like. They generally want like this pretty like hippie-ish kind of world. You're talking about the original position. Yeah, something like that, which is not true always, right? Like if you're talking to like an ISIS terrorist, they'll probably draw a very, very different world than you. And you're like, oh, we have an ideological difference, right? Like that's an actual philosophical ideological difference of the kind of world ideally that I want to live in and ideally that you want to live in. Like those actually don't mix. And so we're going to have to have a ideological conversation here before we do anything else. But most Sally Cohn, far left liberals, and even like right wing Matt Walsh's of the world generally are designing a pretty similar kumbaya kind of world. How we get there is where the difference is. We can have a political conversation about how we get there. But like you said, it's a means to an end. It's a problem of the commons. Matt Walsh says the best way to get to that utopia is this. Sally Cohn says the best way to get to that utopia is this. And now we have a political arm wrestling match. But it's always, it's seemingly being cast in these ideological terms of like that person's evil and that person's good. This person's a racist. This person is not a racist. It gets cast in these ideological terms that should be reserved. And this is the real danger. Like ISIS and you and me have ideological differences, not political differences. Obviously there's political ones, but our ends are totally different, which is a problem. But most of the disagreements that we're having in a country like America or most of the world are actually means conversations, which are political differences, but the ends are the same. And Majid was a little hesitant to give her the benefit of the doubt of that. It probably should have been a red flag. I was so sure that I was making this film as a liberal being like my differences with Kendi or Sally Cohn or whatever, or even Linda Sarsour are that her strategies are going to backfire spectacularly right? The whole thing of like, if the left doesn't have an honest conversation about this, the right is going to have it for us on something like post 9-11 conversations about religion and its relationship to terrorism and violence. I think that's borne out to be true, but that was a political concern. It was like, I understand, I think the world that you're trying to create, but you're not going to get there using the strategy. You're going to alienate everyone. You're going to hand the conversation over to your enemies and it's going to backfire and hurt the people that you and I are both trying to protect, which in a post 9-11 world was like, we're trying to avoid a major backlash against Muslims or anti-Muslim bigotry or true racism or xenophobia or anti-immigration in the worst possible way. Whatever that looks like, we're trying to avoid that and your strategy is going to lead to it. So let me try to convince you politically of that position. But ideologically, we're actually, we're trying to get to the same ends, right? And I feel like we've lost that 
on so many conversations. We forget that we're not ideologically opposed, we're politically opposed. It should be easier to solve. Yes, everyone wants to get to utopia where they're just fighting over which directions to take. Like, hey, let's use my map and not yours, or I want to use this map and not yours. And and what gets so frustrating when talking with fellow liberals or people on the left when I like take issue with, let's say, Kendi's constitutional anti-racist amendment. Yeah. Like, I don't take issue with it because I don't want kids of color to succeed. I do. I want every kid, every adult of any background to be able to live their fullest and most fulfilling life in America or elsewhere that they can. Again, the original position is the veil of ignorance. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I'm such such a bigot. But it's the veil of ignorance, right? Like if you were standing in front of the veil of ignorance before you were born and you had to construct a society and you don't know where your place in society will be, everyone will construct a society that is equal in that position. Because if you don't know if you're going to be on the lowest end of society or the highest, and it's a dice roll before you walk through the veil, you're going to construct a society that benefits everyone equally. And that's the society that I think most everyone wants, because I think most everyone understands that their place in this world is largely a result of a cosmic dice roll. But it's so frustrating, you so perfectly articulated it, when we push back against certain aspects of the anti-racist movement, for instance, right? It's not because we disagree with anti-racism. It's more because we fear that if they were to get the way that they want, it would create either a huge backlash from the right, which could lead to something horrific, or even if it doesn't lead to a backlash, it won't lead to the kind of equality that they're seeking in their heart. Yeah. And that's the frustrating thing because even conversations like that, where all you're just trying to say is, is like, hey, can we take a look at this map that you're using to get us to Disneyland? Because we both want to go. But my fear is, is that your map might lead us out of a ditch. Hmm. And I know you want to get to Disneyland just as much as I do. And I don't have all the answers either. My map might get us to a ditch as well. But all I'm trying to figure out is if we can get to the bridge so we can go to Disneyland and have popsicles. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I like the analogy. I've never been to Disneyland, by the way, just Disney World. But yeah. Oh, really? Well, you should go. Well, you should go eventually. Eventually. I should check it out. But yeah, the analogy totally works and it's perfectly stated. How do we get the conversation out of those ideological terms and back into just these like political differences and strategic differences that we're trying to solve the same thing? But we're certainly in danger of, I think, losing sight of that somewhat permanently. And then we'll just have to like reinvent it from step one all over again. Here's another one. This is from another essay I wrote, but I think it's it's right on your point. Some of this takes some political creativity that people are, are lacking. A statement like, I've made this point, but a statement like all women everywhere should be free to show their hair in public. It should be like the easiest statement of a moral position for everybody to make. But the a fact that you already know who might hear that statement and get very energized of being like, yeah, f- those Muslims who don't let them do that is a problem, right? It's a truth because immediately you fear if I have this thought, which again, it's just a moral position, a really easy one, but a moral position, it implies without deviation, a political stance about what we ought to do about immigration or what we ought to do about Saudi Arabia. Should we go bomb Iran? Should we go liberate all those women? Should we just go like ban all Muslims or something? Like those solutions are totally not the only ones that 
might lead from that moral thought. In fact, you would call this like a woke position if you said like, well, yeah, I think morally that's true, but America's history of racism or addiction to oil in the Middle East and all of our policies have rendered us and our imperialism, even just our racism, right? Like the white supremacy that existed here sort of overtly legally for so long really renders us the worst kind of expressors of that moral position along the world. So I'm just going to keep my mouth shut because like America just shouldn't be doing this. Even that, I don't agree with what I just laid out, but I was steel manning the position of actually remaining quiet about that position or not uttering something so simple. You could do it, but even that is admitting that the moral position is obviously agreeable. You want to live in a world where every woman can show her hair. You just have political differences about how to do it. Now, again, I think like that position is not the right one to take, but it's fine. It's on the table still. You could still accept that moral position and land at that political position without fooling yourself, really. Like you can keep both of those things in your mind. So having a moral position and a political position are not always this straight line from one automatically leads to the next. And I think post 9-11, that was very difficult for a lot of people. My personal experience at my college was, even in my own mind, being hesitant to be like, wait a minute, all the people who flew those planes in the building are Muslims and they're all talking about going to paradise and their book is telling them to like kill infidels. Like, does that have anything to do with this? Even having that thought in your mind is uncomfortable for a young deontological liberal who's been taught to respect all cultures. And that was, again, just like a rule that you always do no matter what, which is maybe a good rule. But of course, there's the always the like dot, 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 it depends. And it's hard and it takes some time to be like, am I still a liberal while having that thought? And then I think if you strip liberalism or conservatism or anything we've talked about this whole podcast from ideological, deontological positions to more consequential, practical, how do we get to that end that we're trying to get to positions, you could still easily land in a quote unquote liberal position from having that thought and still have the thought, still have the totally rational easy thought. And then maybe that's not as hard for people to do anymore with the example I used. But when you start talking about things like genetics and intelligence, it becomes like explosively difficult to have those thoughts in your own mind of like, wait a minute. Of course, if intelligence is at all inheritable and populations cluster and they tend to cluster along phenotypical lines that also correlate with this thing that we sometimes now call race or whatever, there's of course going to be some sort of clustering and moving of those things. Like you stop yourself having that thought, even though everything I said is obviously true because the implications of it are being like, wait, am I a racist? Or like, wait, do we need to now have like eugenics or wait, do we need concentration camps? Like, of course not. Of course not. Because of everything else we just said, it has no moral implication of what I just said or political implication of the kind of political system that we need to devise. In fact, it might lead you to be like, oh, that should obviously what you were bringing up with John Rawls' veil of ignorance lead to a political system that admits the kind of random dice roll of something like intelligence and now its value we put in this marketplace and maybe we should try to reduce that somehow or maybe we need to some assistance to that which should lead to just more compassion which historically would be this like liberal hippie kind of thing so even that you could be Charles Murray and be woke like it's not that hard do you know what I mean like you can land at those political positions with just a little creativity and still have the moral positions but it seems that we're not allowing people to express these very innocuous moral positions because we're assuming that that puts them on some sort of political prescription of what must happen. 
And a lot of this happened for me personally, post 9-11, having those thoughts, being a little confused by it, not knowing what to do with it. And then George W. Bush, who suddenly has become very cuddly because of Donald Trump, which I hate, and David Frum, who wrote these speeches for him, really started to pull out a lot of this, you're either with us or against us rhetoric. And that was the moment where the sides started to really be formed, where nuance about politically how we were going to respond to a very, a simple moral statement, but a very complex political world became ideological, you're with us or against us. The American flag became politicized. A lot of things started to break post 9-11. I think when historians write about whatever happens in America, this stretch all the way through Donald Trump and what we're dealing with now, it'll probably finish a chapter that starts with September 11th, 2001, and a failure to respond collectively with the story of what this nation is supposed to mean. Yeah. See, there's a problem here, Jay, which is that you're very interesting and I enjoy, <laughs> I enjoy speaking with you. And the trick is, is that every time you talk, I have a bunch of follow-up questions that I want to ask because you get my mind going. Let's keep but, going, man. <laughs> but the trick is, is that time is finite and I do want to keep going and perhaps we can continue in another conversation because I genuinely have enjoyed this. But I would like to ask one final question before yeah. I get to the final question. So I guess the penultimate question. The martini, as we say in the film business. Yeah, the martini. Yes, yes, yes. It's been a while since I've been on a film set. What's the thing right before the martini? It's the... Um, oh, God, I don't know. Yeah, named yeah, after I don't guy. Even, yeah, and the martini is named after some actress who always called out, like, get my martini ready because we're almost start shaking it so as soon as the last call is done anyway this is film nerdy stuff for the people listening but yeah a little inside baseball yeah there you go but are you familiar with the youtube channel chris gazat oh i love it love it love it it. yeah yeah in my ideal universe you would collaborate with them because it just seems like it's right up your alley i thought about it i thought about it but they have this video on optimistic nihilism Mm -hmm. you've seen it i have yeah yeah what are your thoughts on that and do you think it's an ethos or a way to live one's life that can be fulfilling in the age of liberalism and in in the age of plenty? I do. I know the video you're talking about. I recommend everyone find it. Kurtz Gazad is amazing. If you've been on the internet and you haven't found it yet, like you haven't been doing the internet, right? It's that good. It's just these great little snippet animations. Yeah, I know the philosophy you're talking about, and I'm going to shift it a little to, and anybody who follows me knows and is nauseated now that yet again, I'm referencing David Deutsch, but I love his definition of optimism, which I think they're sort of leaning into in that video. So his definition of optimism is really, really simple. And he wrote this incredible book that I've read three times now called The Beginning of Infinity. It's a difficult read, but like worth it beginning to end. And his definition of optimism is that all evil is due to lack of knowledge. And pause with that word evil for a minute and just put it aside because I know it invokes a lot of other questions. But what it is and why it's so good is it's not even a stance that like the best thing is going to happen. We tend to use this phrase optimism in these simple ways of like something good will happen just because it will. And a pessimist is like, oh, only bad things will happen. He's got a much more nuanced version of optimism of, of all evil is due to lack of knowledge. And if you say evil is something we all just sort of agree upon as it's something bad that we all sort of agree, like a genocide or or even something bad happening to you, your daughter dies in a car accident, like that's a kind of cosmic evil. And if we had the knowledge to prevent it, we would have prevented it. So the only thing preventing us from this evil manifesting itself, whether that's coronavirus right now, is the knowledge of how to stop it. That includes political knowledge. So you could be like, well, if everyone wore a mask, we would stop it. We have the knowledge already. What are you talking about? We don't have the political knowledge, clearly. 
to articulate that message well enough, if that really is the best answer, to make that happen. Or whatever the best knowledge is, if there's some perfect vaccine that we could just spray in the air and no one even needs an injection, we should do that, right? And we don't have that knowledge. But fundamentally, and this is to your optimism point, what's exciting about that and why I think it's a stance and answers a lot of these big existential questions that we've brought up in this is that physically, nothing in the laws of physics prevents us from eliminating all the coronavirus in the world right now right? Like it's just a physical object. There's nothing magical or there's no demon in coronavirus. It's a physical thing that's getting in our bodies and attaches to these things and kills people and it's terrible and we spread it. Like we know some things about it. Nothing in the laws of physics would break something that just nanorobots went and just like eliminated all the coronavirus in the world or whatever that ends up looking like. (laughs) So the only thing preventing us from doing it is acquiring the knowledge of how to do it. And I know that sounds simple, but think about how empowering that is of like, okay, it's out there somewhere. The knowledge of how to rearrange our entire solar system into a giant Dyson sphere and collect all of the energy from the sun, which would be an exponentially huge amount of energy to then, I don't know, have us explore the universe or do better science experiments or clearly solve something as trivial as coronavirus or regulate the climate or give us beautiful art. Whatever we do with that energy is a bigger philosophical question, but nothing in the laws of physics prevents that. So just us acquiring the knowledge is the journey that we have to go on in order to get there, whatever that looks like. And so if that's enough for people, the acquisition of knowledge in a sort of a abstract sense, is a capacity that us humans have as a creature. Part of his, the takeaway of that kind of stance is a pushback on something that became very popular actually in the left and in liberal circles and in hippieism of sort of spaceship earth, that this is like our only planet and we have to take care of it, or that we're just, we're muck, we're in somewhere random in the universe and we really don't matter. It actually is an interesting way to say like the appearance of knowledge, whatever that is in any universe, is by far the most profound phenomena that could possibly happen. It can transform an entire universe in a way that no other phenomena really can. Like if we were observing another star system out there somewhere right now, and then we saw within one year of observing it, it arranged into some perfectly symmetrical pattern. And then we realized it was spinning in a way and generating, we would know the only way that phenomena happened is there must be some kind of knowledge there being applied to those atoms to do it. And then presumably something's doing it, an alien species or whatever. But that knowledge creation and the physical phenomena, how it appears in the universe is profound. And we, us little lowly humans that came out of monkeys can do it on a very small scale right now, but we can do it. And if we keep doing that, it's a view that puts us in the center, really, in a lot of ways, in a very special place in the universe without ever invoking God or any kind of deity. It puts us with a great amount of power and responsibility also to do something with it because we are an incredibly rare, obviously, and special phenomenon that it comes out. So it's a way, I think, to inject meaning. Again, I haven't solved the big answer of like, what do we do with all the energy when we have it? I don't know. We have to, like, we can work on that one, but we certainly can recognize evils like coronavirus or the fact that babies die when they shouldn't 
and try to solve those by acquiring knowledge. So it gives you something to do in the morning. And I hope whatever system comes next, as we sort of kept alluding to, we're jumping the gun as philosophers a little bit, saying like we solved all the poverty. We haven't, right? Yes, caveat. But whatever comes next about whatever philosophy sort of emerges to give people meaning, I'm rooting for and hoping for and trying to brainstorm and anybody listening to this can help out. How do we have people feel like they're participating more in that activity rather than just pushing pixels around the world and getting yours out of this capitalist system and fighting with your neighbor in a competitive way to try to like get ahead and get the next Ferrari or whatever. How do we shift that? So it's more of a collective optimistic activity about knowledge creation. I don't know what exactly that looks like, but I have a feeling whatever we come up with next, we're going to need people to feel like they are a part of that. And not only feel like they're a part of that, they actually can be a part of that on big scales, on little scales. And some of that knowledge creation, you could just do like on your own. What I was just talking about might sound like crazy science fiction. You could be Buddha sitting under a tree and trying to find the knowledge of your own enlightenment. And there's knowledge to discover there that could absolutely inform how we live our lives or what we're going to do with all this energy when we have it, because the stakes get higher. Clearly, as you get with great power comes great responsibility. The stakes get higher of if you have a Dyson sphere, which is this thing that gets all the energy from the sun, you can certainly make a mess and blow up your entire planet rather easily. So what can we do that actually elevates our meaning when we have that thing? I don't know. You could get to work on that within your own mind and your own relationships. doesn't need to be in a science lab. How dare you bring up Dyson spheres right at the tail end of the oh, conversation? Oh, is that like your thing? <laughs> <laughs> no, because now I want to have like a two-hour conversation with you about the Fermi paradox, but oh, because yeah. I find that so fascinating. It's the great filter. We're almost there. Just kidding. Oh, yeah. That was an inside joke. Yeah, I feel like we're There's we're a great, wrong. one of the best cartoons got is about the Fermi paradox. So that's a great yes. one to start with if you're just finding it. Yeah. No, highly recommend. And there's a wait, but why article that- Yes, Tim Irvin. So good. But Matt, he's great. Yeah. But yeah, I guess- Jay, I really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation with me. And I want to pose the question to you that I ask all of our guests. I know you've listened to a few episodes of the show, so I know that you know what that question is. But for anyone who's a new listener, I'm going to ask it anyway. We're limited as individuals in all kinds of ways. We're limited in our time, in our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned, caring person can't be thinking of every other person, every group of people all the time, even if and when they're really into philosophy. It's impossible. So is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now, abstract or concrete, that you'd like to take a moment and offer empathy to? Yeah. I love this question. (laughs) It's a nice one. It reminds me of a Mr. Rogers thing where he would ask people for like 60 seconds to just think of someone who helped them get to where they're trying to get to. I knew you were going to ask it, and I've been thinking about it all week, and, I, and I'm not even entirely sure where I'm going to go with it. But I think I'm going to my fiance right now, who, and I don't want to like reveal any of the things there, but is dealing with a lot of very heavy family stuff. And I'm sure she's not the only one. And I just admire her. There you go. Thank you for sharing that. I think it can be easy oftentimes because of everything that's going on in the world over the last year or so for us to forget that people are going through a lot. Yeah. I kind of want to give it to everyone in the world right now. Do you know what I mean? Like it's been tough and COVID's been tough. 
all the stuff that I said at the beginning that might have sound weird about like looking at yourself in the mirror and getting the filters out of the way. My fiance is really good at it. And so I learn a lot from her. And she's patient with me too sometimes when I'm not so good at it. So that's where my empathy goes right now. Well, thank you again, Jay, for taking the time out of your day and out of the many projects that you're working on and podcast appearances you've been on to talk with me about these important issues, about the core of liberalism, where it's going to go next, the problems we face as a society, and how we can try and form bonds of commonality when too often we feel more disparate and disconnected than ever. So thank you again for the work that you do, and thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. No, thank you. I meant when I said at the top, I want you to include it. This show is, is really cool. I'm glad you're doing it. I think you're really hitting on something. So I'm just flattered and honored to be a part of it. Thank you. <laughs>